VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, May the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, thankfully, here comes the sun. Another bright, clear morning here in the city of St. John's. A little bit cool out there. The breeze still a bit chilly, and yesterday, of course, an absolutely glorious day. Had a little walk around downtown. It's so pleasant to see people being able to sit out on the sidewalk at their table and chairs, enjoying a coffee, everyone wearing sunglasses. Felt good. No coincidence, it coincided with young Jack Daly's 23rd birthday. Happy birthday, kid. Love that boy. All right, so, boy, in the world of hockey, Leafs fans, man, it really looks like it's over. You know, you can never say never. I'm sure they will. Actually, I was going to say I'm sure they're not going to roll over, but they probably will because they look like they already have. So they lost 3-2 in overtime. They're down 3-0 in the series. Their top guys are absolutely invisible out there. I watched the game last night. And just for context, so they're big four guys. They haven't scored a single goal in the series. You look across at Canada's other hope in the Edmonton Oilers. They've only played two games. So the Leafs, as a team, have scored six goals in three games. Leon Dreisaitl, the epitome of a power forward this day and age in the NHL, he's got six goals himself in two games. So the Leafs down 3-0. And you know, he's saying never say never. Okay, fine. Only four teams have ever come back from a 3 nothing deficit to win a seven-game series in NHL history. The Leafs did it, as a matter of fact, back in 1942, the Islanders in 75, the Flyers in 2010, and the Kings in 2014. It looks like the Leafs are done. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Dawson Mercer and the Devils get back in the series against Carolina. Mercer looks good. Another three assists to continue his stellar sophomore season, so that's pretty great. And for the Growlers, they took a 2-0 series lead against Reading with a 5-4 overtime victory yesterday. Stick with hockey. The second oldest trophy competed for in ice hockey behind the Stanley Cup is the Boyle Trophy. The Boyle Trophy was donated in 1903 by then Newfoundland Governor Sir Cavendish Boyle. It used to be competed for by the top senior hockey teams, but when the St. John's Senior Hockey League folded in 71, it went by the wayside. There's a bunch of notable names on the Boyle Trophy, or have won the Boyle Trophy, including Howie Meeker, who won it four times as part of the guards. So the folks over at St. Pons, they were really driving this to get the Boyle back in competition. It has been played for sporadically, never was an annual event, and it ended up being played for by high school hockey teams. And now it's back out there in a Tier 2 high school tournament. Someone is going to get a Boyle. And it used to come with a visit or an invitation to City Hall as well, so the Boyle back in it. St. Pons, they've won the trophy 27 times times more than any other club and so bravo on everyone who's involved in getting that back out in competition the beautiful the boil all right quick shout out here to the the members the coaches and the trainers and whoever's involved with the saint peter's junior high grade nine girls basketball team so last year as grade eights they won the provincial title this year as grade nines 36 and 0 a couple of provincial titles they played against the grade 10s last weekend in the tournament made it to the semis they competed this past weekend against the grade 11 so two years their senior not sure how they fared in that particular tournament but they have had a stellar run for a couple of years 14 players eight of them are going to be playing for provincial teams over the summer but as grade nines 36 and 0 not too shabby all right i had no intention of necessarily getting up or wanting to or had much interest in watching the coronation of King Charles III. 
But my body clock won't let me sleep in on the weekend, which is really quite annoying. So I woke up and I thought, all right, flick it on for a second, see what's going on. So a quarter of a billion dollars later, heavy is the head, right? So, you know, you watch it and can admire, I suppose, some of the pageantry and the pomp and circumstance, but then at the exact same time, it's the obscene opulence and some of the tattered history of the monarchy over the course of the centuries. So I don't know where you stand on it. Now, the government of Canada did say that the King Charles will be featured on the $20 banknote and on some coins. So, you know, one thing I will say is regardless of what you think about the monarchy, whoever's involved in the choreography, bravo. The moving parts and the intricacy in that two- or three-hour event is really something else. But King Charles coronated over the weekend what do you think of that anyway let's go also it's actually ve day victory day in uh europe as well so it was on this date that the germans unconditionally surrendered their military forces to the allies which of course included the states on the 8th of may of 1945 celebrations erupted worldwide the war officially over as the germans surrender unconditionally and speaking of warring ships there's a french uh, naval patrol boat in the port of st john's here this morning i think they're going to open it to a tours for the general public tomorrow between 10 and 12 but anyway that's usually uh, docked in St. Pierre and Miquelon but just involved in some joint exercises at sea okay and French you know someone last week asked me to bring it up and I forgot about some parts of the province that want to continue on with French immersion but it looks like student enrollment in the years to come might not be strong enough to keep it in their neck of the woods so if you are one of those such concerned families you're more than welcome to join us and speaking with various educators over the last little while on a variety of topics, but one that seems to get a lot of traction inside their world, whether it be administrators or senior leadership at the former district or teachers, they're a little bit concerned with the move to blend or to fold the K-12 district into the Department of Education. A variety of concerns being voiced. Number one, schools are an urgent setting. The urgency of government is not really the same thing, is it? We talked about the glacial pace or the snail's pace with sometimes how government operates. So that couldn't, uh, could absolutely pose a problem. Then they go on to talk about the potential for further political involvement versus simply the operations of the K-12 system. That's a legitimate concern. They think that it's going to be chaotic, and the reason they voice that thought is because in other parts of the country where they've tried it, and we're the only province that are entertaining this exercise at this moment of time. So in PEI, they did it. They folded the district into the government, but very, very quickly recognized that it wasn't working, and so it went right back to a district setup. So to get an update here and you know to hear from educators and I know you're loath to put your name on it but if you wanted to be caller on three or a retired teacher or whatever the case may be your thoughts as someone who's on the front lines would be very helpful to this conversation for many folks who do not have a direct involvement even if you have a child in the system I don't know if we have a firm understanding about what this is going to mean the province has simply said that it's going to improve outcomes for students how don't really know so if it's going to be jobs that might go away by attrition and money saved there and reinvested into the system that's one thing but we really don't know much about it and it all come in one fell swoop right away goes the new flannel labrador english-speaking school district the four original health authorities into the department of uh, community health and community services so 
you know, that one, we've actually spoke with David Diamond. He's the CEO of the newly established Health Authority about what that's going to look like and some of the concerns that people have had. And Mr. Diamond answered those questions here on the show. But still a lot of unknowns about how that school-related matter is going to work out. So if you want to take it on. Plus, people continually suggest that inside K-12, you know, some of the old traditional testing methods and things have changed dramatically on that front. And what types of curriculum could indeed be added, whether it be money management or a first aid or whatever the case may be. And in the world of money management, this past weekend, the Liberals gathered for their three-day policy convention. Some strange stuff goes on there. Okay. So one, this was brought forward by the Quebec Liberals about the return to balanced budgets. In a morning vote of 97 to 76, without formal debate, they voted against it. Contrast that with Mr. Poliev, who made his fourth visit to the province over the last 12 months, and he was in Cornerbrook over the weekend, talking about the need for every new dollar spent to be a dollar uh, found in savings. So I don't know if that translates in your mind to cuts to services, but balanced budget, when we're looking at the most recent federal budget with a $40 billion deficit, that becomes quite the tangle. The Liberals were also brought forward a motion by the Saskatchewan-based Liberals talking about mandatory voting. And it does happen in parts of the world. In Australia, you have to vote. If you don't, you have to pay a minor fine. But they voted against that as well. It was confirmed that the so-called grocery rebate, which is not really a grocery rebate, it's an additional GST bump, that will come in July, for those of you out there wondering when that money will flow. And you don't have to do anything extraordinary to get the money. If you're eligible for GST or the HST rebate, and you have filed your taxes, you will automatically get this particular check. So if you want to talk about some of the things you heard there, and like in the liberal policy conventions of the past, they, for instance, voted in favor of pursuing what the fixed link might look like. And it's in the hands of the Infrastructure Bank of Canada where that lies, the status of, no earthly idea, but that's gone by the wayside very quickly. And if you want to talk about if you're in attendance or would like to talk about Mr. Poliev's obvious thought that there's opportunities there for the Conservative Party of Canada to pick up a seat, which they have one right now, Clifford Small, of course, they obviously think there's something afoot because four trips now, there's also a thought that maybe getting those trips done now and when the formal campaign starts, maybe, just maybe, with some of the key higher focus areas, whether it be along the 401 in Ontario or what have you, that you might not see another visit. But he's been here four times in 12 months. And, you know, the same conversations with axing the tax. And come on the 1st of July this year, we will be under the federal tax scheme, which includes carbon tax applied to home heating fuels. So there's a contrast there in those particular events over the weekend you want to bring it forward we can do it also with the mandatory vote you know i know this really riles some people up but there's still lingering conversations out there about lowering the voting age you know people involved in the process for some you'll think well you simply don't know what's going on in this world at the age of 16 and you should not be able to vote because you really don't have your finger on the pulse which i think implies that everyone over the age of 18 does which is of course patently not true and there are some people out there working at the age of 16 paying taxes. It does pose a problem if you are paying taxes and have no say, don't get a vote. I think there's something problematic or interesting about that. You want to talk about it? Let's go. So tourism season is, um, is upon us, of course, ramping up for the heavy months. So the province is going to enforce all the short-term rentals to register with the provincial government. Let's see if I can get that date up in front of me. By April of 2024. Interesting. Also, when it comes to one of the key offerings in tourism season is the culinary scene. 
But the winters have proven to be just brutal over the years. And these past couple of winters, absolutely devastating. We've seen the number of uh, restaurants that have gone by the wayside. Story in the news today about Lung Wa, the Japanese restaurant, the, pardon me, the Chinese food restaurant, that's been in operation for 30 years, closing their doors. There are plenty of restaurateurs who are thinking, and some of them saying out loud, that in winters to come, you're going to see more and more maybe simply open for the weekend, taking their chance that it won't be a snowstorm, or possibly closing the shop for the entirety of the soft winter months to simply reopen when the tourists come. We've seen a distinct change in behavior for the general public, whether it be the amount of money that we have to spend to go out for a meal, or the numbers of people who have really upped their cooking game at home during the pandemic. But whatever's going on, you've, if you walk down through the city of St. John's downtown, you see a lot of shuttered places that were formerly restaurants. And the winters in the future, it might be very few options. But if you're a restaurateur, we'll have to talk about what's gone on in the recent past. We can do it. And whether or not you see enough of your local seafood, whether it be in the grocery stores or on the menus at the local restaurants. Snow crab. Okay. So it's been a huge standoff, and it doesn't look like there's an end in sight. So on Friday, the Association of Seafood Producers made an offer to the FFAW, at which on Saturday the union said they'd reached a tentative agreement. The processor said they'd pay $2.20 a pound for the remainder of the season. On April 28th, when they wrote the union, they committed to $2.20 a pound for 21 days, which kind of led most people to believe that they would go back to the panel looking for a lower price to reflect what might be a further softening of the crab market. When the union went to their uh, dues-paying members, they voted it down, and so all the boats remained tied up. I don't know where this ends, but this really does feel like the end game. Maybe it's to see pragmatic changes for seasons in the future, but we're arriving at a point where this crab season looks like it could be lost in full, which is truly remarkable. So they talk about, you know, having to further negotiate on trip limits and hoping for not only a higher price, but what I think has always been the key here is the share of the price, the share of the market price that would be afforded to harvesters as opposed to the large swath of it going to the processors at this moment of time. There's also rumbles and rumors, I'm told, that outside buyers are willing to pay almost three bucks a pound for snow crab, but it looks like they are going to remain tied up for the foreseeable future. And now the language has changed a little bit. It's not necessarily about a higher price. It's a higher percentage of the price going to the harvesters. If you are one on either side, we can talk about it today. And sticking with the fishery. And look, the topics, if I don't bring them up and there's something else you want to bring forward, please do exactly that. If there was anyone more passionate about the fishery than Gus Etchegary, I've never met them or spoken to them. Mr. Etchegary passed over the weekend at the age of 98. So I've, I know Gus Etch, or knew Gus Etchegary and certainly spoke with him many, many times here on this program. And you know, his historical context and his historical knowledge of the fishery is and was extraordinary. You know, he would call for a royal commission to talk about how this, this fishery has been decimated over the decades from every angle conceivable. And so Gus not only was the advocate for a restructuring and a better understanding of the governance of the fishery in this province, he had the knowledge that I think really filled in a lot of the blanks for the listening public. He was a force of nature. That much we know to be true. So I'll miss talking to Gus. And our deepest condolences to Kay and his family and his friends. And on top of that, Mr. Etchegary had an absolutely fascinating life. 
a long and rich life. So not only as a fishery executive, you know, one of the key people for bringing and keeping soccer alive in the Bureau Peninsula, as recognized as a member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Also, the last surviving person who was there to rescue folks of the Truxton and Pollux disaster. And of course, 200, uh, 204 people died, and that was February of 1942. He was a teenager. And I listened to him speak with Linda Swain about it, and it was riveting. And it was a little, in some part, it was overwhelming. So if I'm pretty sure we're going to hear from one, two, three, or however many people today on the program recalling the life and time and the impact of an absolute fisheries-related, and in many forms, an iconic name and person in Newfoundland and Labrador, Gus Etchigiri, dead at the age of 98. He'll be missed. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Jeff LeDrew is the owner of The Jumping Bean, and he joins us on line number five. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Uh, hey, Patty. How's it going? Not too bad this morning. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. good. I just wanted to do, uh, chime in, I guess, on the point of uh, downtown. Obviously, we've been uh, we've been a staple downtown for many years, but I guess the, the main thing I see happening primarily is, uh, I mean, obviously, this time of year, it's pretty rough because you're not seeing the foot traffic, right? But uh, revenue really hasn't gone up but wages and expenses just obviously pinch that kind of number that you can make to survive. So, you know, my concern is long-term whether or not business will actually catch up quick enough in order to be able to recover, you know, not not given COVID and the numbers gone up, but even retail, you know, retail sales are down across the board, but all retailers, 25 30%. I mean, input costs are up and everything that you mentioned is what I think is being felt in businesses across the board, certainly when it comes to hospitality or food service or what have you. The problem for me is, look, I'm not involved in the business, so my problems would only be philosophical, is when you see prices spike, regardless of what we're talking about, canola oil or all foodstuffs or gasoline or whatever the case may be, we don't see them come back to worth. Even when some of the uh, water on the beans changes, we just don't see any relief. So this is going to have long-term implications. And people's own personal beha- uh, behaviors and habits and willingness to spend money for whether it be a cup of coffee at your store as opposed to parking one at home or going for a meal versus cooking at home. So between all of those things, it will take a real sea change to see things go back to quasi-normal and profitability at, that you once experienced. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's not going to be a change. I think just consumer patterns have changed and uh, uh, inflation through the roof. I mean, it's felt by everybody, you know what I mean? Whether it's, uh, you know, business or even our employees. I mean, they, you know, it's uh, still managing off, uh, off tips at the best of times. But as you see this, you know, rise in, in um in the wages and expenses, I mean, we just haven't seen our top top. You know, revenue doesn't track the same way, right? So the top, your top line revenue doesn't go in the same direction as salaries or expenses. So you kind of, if you're topped in on one end, you're getting pinched on the bottom end, and it's really tough to control those those costs in order to make uh, to make it survive. So that's my concern. Whether or not more businesses will go out from under. Now we're happenstance to be launching a couple of new stores and got a you know a bright outlook for the future in a pedestrian mall but it's not easy it's never it's not going to be easy for people and you mentioned inflation so we've seen inflation stabilize somewhat nowhere near the hope to be in the two percent range but even when those numbers have come down a little bit i'm not so sure i felt any relief you know especially when no. we talk about food inflation it becomes stubbornly in and around 10 ish percent 10 or 11 percent so it's not in line with the overall inflation numbers and so for the most of us you know the things that 
that we all need to do is to eat. And so food inflation, where I think it's absolutely battering Canadians because of the overall inflation number, I don't know if I've felt any cold comfort from it being stabilized. My purchasing power with the amount of money I have versus what I can get for the money is ridiculously low. Oh, yeah. It's the, My That's purchasing right. power has gone by the wayside. I know. And like I said, it's just like you can't catch up. Like there's no... Uh, you know, there's no windfall there where your your salary or whatever is going to keep up uh, to the point where you got that little, uh, you know, nest egg that you maybe put away for a, a rainy day. So that's, therein lies the problem, right? As it chips away at uh, at your purchasing power, there's no way back. There's no easy way back other than loans or refis or whatever. I've spoken to people in the restaurant business over the course of the last number of months in particular, and they talk about uh, losses that they will never recoup. And the thought that the seasons in the years to come will be restaurants shuttered. You know, why try to take it on and cross your fingers and hope that there's not a snowstorm that shuts down the, the city or the region for a weekend where you make your money? So, and uh, there's this one bar that I will leave unnamed, but they've done very, very well for decades. And in January, for the first time ever, didn't hit a specific number. Over the course of 30 years, they always were able to bring in top line revenue at X. And this is the first January ever they didn't make that. So those losses are starting to stack up and recovery, don't know how it works. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I think uh, I just hold tight, I guess. But it's, I mean, keeping an eye on me, you know, all you can do is just do your best to manage expenses and, you know, <laughs> and 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 cross and, uh, your fingers a little bit on the revenue side that we uh, we see the uptick in, in whether that's tourism or the sunshine that brings a few people out. But I mean, I just want to I just want to carry that forward, just to, you know, whether it's personally or through business. I mean, those expenses without the either your either your own personal revenue from your salary or whether it's revenue in a business is you know doesn't really track with the expenses, so it's not going to be an easy uh, easy time for next little while. I appreciate this. Uh, good luck, Jeff. Yep. No worries. Thanks, buddy. Take See care. Bye bye, Jeff Ledrews, the owner of Jumping Bean. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Marv. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thank you for putting me on this morning. I had a couple of topics I wanted to raise with you. Um, of course, one to do with the Liberal Convention and the passing of a, a motion that affected this province. But before I do, first and foremost, I want to extend my condolences to Gus Echegiri's uh, family and his big circle of friends, of course. And it's, uh, yeah, it's so sad to hear uh, of his passing. And, um, over the last decade, I must say, I came became very close to to Gus. We shared a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, and so on. And uh, you know, he left he left uh, quite a legacy and and quite a history and quite a, if I may say so, without sounding too bureaucratic, uh, quite a point of reference that is going to take us, I think, well into the future. And you know, I've been saying, look, uh, you know, as we discuss the future going forward. Um, you know, his name will be coming up over and over and over and all the information and the material and the ideas and thoughts that that he talked about, I think, will form a big part of the language that we use. And uh, and so, you know, his, his footprint will be there for a long, long time, you know, and I, I hope... Uh, the powers to be when when we look at, you know, the contribution that um, Gus has made, you know, to community and to the fishery and so on, that, you know, the memoriam that we leave 
uh, forum is is substantive. You know, I'm, I'm thinking scholarships. I'm thinking other things like that. Something something substantive. You know, because the contribution is uh, absolutely incredible. You know, I was just so compelled to to just to, to express that, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more probably this morning, Patty. Yeah, while people are hanging their hat on price per pound, you know, gospel talk about the. The way the fishery has been mismanaged historically, whether it be mm-hmm. by the government of Canada using as a diplomatic bar- bargaining chip or whatever the case may be, but a full understanding that the current structure and governance of the fishery I don't think is working for anyone. It's not working for the harvesters. Mm-hmm. It's not working for the processors. It's not working for people working in the plants. There's just something broken inside a critically important, historically notable industry that we just keep going down the same path year over year. You know, uh, body up and bycatch and trip limits and price per pound and uh, the weeks on the water told when you can fish, who, what you can fish for. I mean, there's just something that should be, if we can identify it as inherently flawed, then making a move towards fix versus what has long been simply Band-Aids and then maybe getting together with all different sides in the room, winks and nods and handshakes just to come out the other side and nothing's changed. Yeah, absolutely. All that and more. And we will have lots of discussion, I'm sure, going forward. You know, Gus was not very selfish in his approach to all this. And he left a lot of ideas and thoughts and material, uh, written material for us all to use as we try to continue with that um, with that battle, you know. And I do want to save a little bit of time here. To talk about the, the Liberal Convention, well, specifically to talk about a resolution that, uh, in fact, the only resolution that came out of Newfoundland and Labrador, which I put together uh, back some months ago and put uh, before the Assembly. I was there. I was present. And and that uh, resolution, Patty, had to do with uh, making Goose Bay, Five Wing Goose Bay, a primary uh, search and rescue base with uh, dedicated um, primary uh, search and rescue resources and that you know that would be significant as, as you know not for just for for goose bay but all the coastal the adjacent areas and well into the arctic and eastern lots of the bay and all that area it just encompasses such a such a big area and so many things to say about that resolution and you know it passed unanimously it passed without debate uh, i was kind of surprised right from the outset actually the first thing they did with this resolution is they made it number one priority, and I mean number one, as it went through all the committee processes and all the debates before it got to the to the convention. It was elevated to priority number one, which meant that it had bypassed a lot of protocols, a lot of discussion and debate trying to bring it to the top. And in the in the end, it was one of 24 uh, official uh, policies that became official Liberal Party of Canada uh, uh, policy going forward. Just one of 24 out of almost uh, 400 resolutions. So I feel very, very good about this. And I know that the people of Labrador, I couldn't have uh, made this work. I couldn't have been in Ottawa without the support of Manitoba uh, Community Council. And so I, I I just want to thank them for it and the people that uh, I surrounded myself with as we went forward with this, uh, Jeanette Russell and her husband, Dwight, and all these people. And this this is a great step forward I, for the life of me. Eddie, I just simply cannot see now the government of Canada saying to their own party, 
now that this is official um, government policy that, uh, yeah, I know what you want, I know what you put in a resolution, I know what 4,000 people voted on, but no, I don't think we're going to make that primary such a risky base. I, I just think that it's, uh, it, it's a compelling uh, piece of work that uh, can't be ignored, I, I think. Here's a hair split for you. It's not official government of Canada policy, it's Liberal Party policy. And there's a slight difference within the two, but it's a really important distinction, because there's been lots of things passed at different party conventions that have never been formalized in terms of policy or budgetary items or what have you. The fixed link comes to mind, for instance. So to see it acted upon will be the be-all and end-all. It's fine for it to be uh, adopted as one of the 24 resolutions at a policy convention, but there's still another massive step to take on that front. Specifically, what are you talking about at Five Wing Goose? Because the last time the government of Canada was at Five Wing Goose, Minister Anand was there to talk about huge investment, hundreds of millions of dollars, as part of four different northern bases, our work with NORAD. So what specifically are you saying should be in or at Five Wing Goose? Yeah, no, you made a good point on, on, you know, the hair splitting, obviously. It is one step in the process of trying to make this uh, uh, five-wing goose bay a a world-class uh, air base um, b- before we get it over the top. So there's, there's more work to be done. Let's be no doubt about that. Um, but uh, no, we're talking about a primary dedicated search and rescue base. And primary basically means, look, it's it's got standby posture. It has resources. It has trained crews available. Uh, there will be a, a, the expectation of a cormorant and maybe fixed wing, but definitely a, a cormorant helicopter. Uh, for those people familiar with what's in Gander at the moment, it'll be it'll be similar. Uh, Greenwood, Nova Scotia, Trenton, Ontario, Victoria, BC. You know, it'll form the it'll form the basis of, of a strengthened uh, unit with all of these capabilities. Of course, now we know that it's a secondary uh, a component of, of, of search and rescue, which means you know that uh, resources there will be available, but not on a standby posture, not on that uh, standard standby posture, not with trained crews. We recall we go back to the days of the Burton Winters uh, incident, and we know that the, the, the three Griffin helicopters there were basically on the floor of the maintenance uh, building, and uh, it because they weren't compelled, they weren't uh, mandated, uh, if you will, to have uh, those kinds of resources and the trained crews available uh, with a standby posture. You just simply didn't have to do it. And so consequently, we didn't have that. If there were to be a breakdown now under the current situation, uh, situ- or in the new situation, if we were to get it at the primary base, it, it would mean that if there's a breakdown, that uh, there has to be a replacement immediately and all that all of these kinds of protocols now would kick into place. And yes, it, it wouldn't be cheap. It would be expensive. We know that. But as you alluded to, you know, with the commitment now long-term, part of the NORA defense system means that there's $38.6 billion allocated, you know, for detection equipment and for defense equipment. What a great time now to to look at this and to, you know, pay back to... You know the people in this in that area. Uh, you know their obligation to at, at least protect them in times of of emergencies. You sure. know I think there's a big component of reconciliation in all this and sovereignty. Let's not forget sovereignty of the north. You know. Oh well, that's that conversation's been lost, and that's going to be critically important, especially with the more understanding and the ice conditions and the northwest passage and and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So just specifically, because there's lots of things that have been recommended through royal commissions and inquiries and what have you. I mean, there was back to the 
1982 Alec Hickman shared inquiry into the loss of the Ocean Ranger was the establishment of a 24-7 uh, primary search and rescue base at St. John's. Has never happened. So uh, what are you talking about? Is it a cormorant and crew? Is it a fixed-wing aircraft yep. and crew? Is it mention of any fast uh, fast rescue craft because Labrador has nothing, no capacity at sea? So are those three things part of this? Absolutely. This is it right here. You know, in, in terms of... Uh, the kinds of equipment, uh, especially a, a helicopter, uh, a, a, a primary search and rescue helicopter, similar to the Comorant, uh, the CH-149 that's been used across the country. So one of those, a fixed wing, um, maybe fixed wing, uh, I would think with the facilities in Goose Bay that fixed wing would be easy. But right now, even in Newfoundland and Labrador, with the primary uh, base uh, at 103 in Gander, uh, fixed wing uh, has to come in. It's a dedicated fixed wing to Hercules and Aurora would have to come in from Greenwood, Nova Scotia. So, you know, we, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But definitely uh, the helicopter with, it, with train crews, and, and that's very important, you know, the significance of, 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 of that kind of training, search and rescue technicians, the ability to administer, you know, medical arrangements uh, on site and things like that. That's that's very, very important. But, you know, specifically, that's what we're looking at, you know. And, and, and if we look, if we go back to the Austin Ranger inquiry, we know that there were recommendations that came from that that didn't happen. But, Patty... There is a lot of recommendations that did happen. Oh, and, I know. Uh, I was just talking about search and rescue yeah. specifically because yeah. that's what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so all they did, I guess, in terms of what that inquiry meant was that they put the a Marine Rescue Sub-Center in, in St. John's uh, and they put the 103 in Gander and they equipped that, you know, with Comorant. And so they, they strengthened that. And then I think that they considered that would, you know, cover off the east coast of, of Newfoundland and Labrador. St. John's, yeah, just a lot more to be said about St. John's and the role that it could play in search and rescue and will continue that fight, that's for sure. Well, closest but, base uh, to the offshore, so is it proximity, yeah. even if that was what the, uh, even if we were simply governed by proximity or adjacency, just to yeah. slip a little fishery I, in there. Uh, I, I do have to go, Merv, uh, final thoughts to you very quickly. Well, look, uh, uh, Teddy, I just want to go back again to say that this is one piece of trying to get where you have to be. I recall the fight that we had to restore the Marine Rescue Subcenter, and, you know, it didn't happen overnight, and we knew that it was a political decision to close it. We knew that it would have to be a political decision to open it, and four years later, of course, we, we, we got that decision, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. I, I know I personally, uh, I, re- I, I recall my wife saying to me, uh, one morning I was getting ready to come on Holton Line. She said, this is about getting this, three years into the, the fight we were having and all the advocacy and so on. She said, like, I think you should stop now. She said, people are getting tired of it. She said, I know I am. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's the battle you have to fight. And uh, we're not there yet, but uh, I think this is a major step forward. Appreciate the time, Merv. Thank you. Okay, doke. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking motorcycle safety. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Well, it's two-wheel season. Join us on line number one is Wayne Morgan. He's with the Iceberg Alley Riders. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. 
morning, Paddy, and thank you for having me. Happy to have you on the programme. It's always a helpful reminder for the motoring public that it is indeed motorcycle season. Same thing when we move from fall to winter. We all have to adjust our driving habits and our following distance and all the rest of it. Same thing, I think, when we move into the summer season, and all of a sudden, you haven't been seeing the bikes for months, but now they're back on the road. So just a little chat about they're out there and what we need to think about, I think, is helpful. Yes, exactly, Patty. Uh, like you said, it's the time of the year again now where um, the motorcycles are starting to get back out on the road or winter season is over. We're starting to get some nice weather. Uh, this week is looking pretty good. Yesterday was a beautiful day, and there was uh, lots of motorcycles out on the road yesterday. So the thing is that people have to uh, get used to seeing the bikes on the road again now, seeing people riding their motorcycles and enjoying it. But, um, you know, just to keep an eye out for them, they are sharing the road now with uh, motorcycles. And uh, they had to be used to it again, get used to seeing those bikes, get used to uh, seeing those one headlights and uh, coming at them at intersections and what have you. And uh, and a, a motorcycle is a lot smaller than a uh, regular-sized vehicle or even your smallest vehicles. So uh, it's something that you had to really, really pay attention to uh, Unfortunately, uh, we've had a couple of accidents already this year, and uh, we don't want to see any more. So we uh, we need the general public uh, to have an eye out for us when we're out there, and to take that second look. Um, you know, for sharing the roads, but also, uh, you know, one of the mottos I keep uh, mentioning is, uh, you know, look twice to save a life. When you're at an intersection, you're getting ready in a vehicle to pull out in an intersection. Have a look to. Uh, Take that second look. Make sure there isn't a motorcycle uh, coming that you didn't see. Um, you know, when you're um, changing lanes, take a look in your mirror. Also, do your shoulder checks. Um, motorcycles are a lot smaller, and they'll hide, hide in your blind spot a lot easier. So take that second look, and uh, you never know. One of us may be there. There's nothing quite like getting your knees in the breeze, right? I mean, it's great to be on a bike. So the motoring public has a responsibility. What do you say to your fellow motorcyclists? Because they also play a role in keeping themselves safe out there. Because the bike, it's no contest. You know, all those big heavy uh, half tons on the road versus a motorcycle, we know what the outcome will be every single time. So what do you say to the guys or the women on the bikes? Because they're quick, they're small, they're agile, but there's some responsibility on behalf of the folks on the bikes. What do you say to them? Oh, exactly. I mean, it's just as much of our responsibility uh, as a motorcycle rider as it is uh, anybody driving a, a car or a truck or anything. I mean, we have to do our part as well. It's a two-way street. I mean, we have to drive defensively. We have to drive by the rules of the road. And, you know, we have to also drive with our heads on a, on a swivel. And, I mean, to watch out for the other vehicles just as the other vehicles have to watch out for us. You have to uh, exactly drive by the rules of the road, drive the speed limits, um, you know, don't drive aggressively, and uh, everybody can enjoy the roads. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we love to be out there uh, with the fresh air blowing in our faces and things like that, but uh, we have to do our part as well. Visibility is one for me. Look, if I had a bike, I had a bike years ago and, and really enjoyed it. But visibility of the rider sometimes gets lost in the shuffle because I think many of us wanted the same thing with our garb. We want a black, right? Sleek, cool, classic black leather, whether it be pants or chaps or anything else. But 
I don't know how many people pay attention to the fact that it's really difficult when, to see a motorcyclist coming up behind you. If you have a black or dark color bike and you're all blacked out with your helmet and visor and jacket and pants, that that also plays a role. What do you suggest to motorists or the motorcycle riders that, you know, some addition of something that is a bit more visible, especially at night? What do you say? I agree 100% uh, with us. Uh, our group, a lot of our group, you'll see uh, they'll, they ride with the high visibility uh, jackets. They could be the, uh, the high visibility orange or uh, yellow or lime green. You know, people drive just with a safety vest on. Visibility uh, is huge. I mean, I agree with you at times. I mean, when you're driving, you can't see somebody that's all dressed out in, in black, especially at night. Um, all you're seeing at night is just the, the one headlight or the tail lights and what have you. But the high visibility that uh, I know our group, a lot of our group wear, have the reflective stripes and stuff on it. So it uh, it helps for the drivers of the vehicles or even another motorcycle, as far as that goes, to uh, to be able to see you and to be able to pick you out. But um, it is a recommendation, I mean, to uh, to wear high visibility clothing or even clothing with some sort of uh, reflective striping on it for at night. Last one. The benefit of riding in a group is quite obvious to me. You know, there's nothing quite like being able to see motorcycles when they're riding in packs of a half dozen or 20 or whatever the case may be. I'm sure that's what you and your fellow members of the Iceberg Alley Riders Club do. So even I think the strength of numbers, two versus one, also makes a difference for me be, to be able to see you coming and to be aware of you in my surroundings. What do you say about the benefits and the upside of trying to ride? You know, not every time are you going to be able to do it because I'm going to work. I'm not going to try to get a bunch of motorcyclists to accompany me going to Camelot Road. But the upside of riding in groups really must be part of being safe. Yeah, that's correct. Like you said, the, the visibility alone with uh, people riding in a group is, is huge. I mean, uh, as you said, I mean, with our group, we have uh, regular scheduled rides twice a week, and uh, which are group rides. But uh, riding in a group is uh, is a lot safer than you know riding as an individual. And as you said, I mean you're not going to uh, in a group all the time. And but um, even if you're riding in a group, you still have to you know play by the rules of the road and things like that. Um, you know, in Canada or Newfoundland, I mean there's no riding side by side when you're driving down the highway. You can ride in the staggered formation, and you still have to you know avoid by the speed limits and all the rules of the road but it is a helpful thing to ride as a group um, and the numbers are there once you see a lot more uh, headlights and bikes and stuff coming at you the visibility is, is a lot greater last one before we go uh, any big rides coming up for the uh, iceberg alley riders this year uh, we've got a lot of like i said we plan uh, two rides every week uh, wednesday and saturdays and we have our various uh, organizational rides that we do. I mean, Toys for Tots is a huge one for us. Um, we do a lot of stuff with the Easter Seals and what have you as well. But one thing we have now, where uh, May is Motorcycle Awareness Month, we have a, uh, a show, uh, a show in China, whatever you want to call it, at the Avalon Mall this Saturday, May 13th, just to uh, let the general public come by, have a look at the motorcycles and ask questions and uh, you know, any information that we can get out there to keep people aware that we are going to be there is uh, greatly appreciated. But uh, drop by and see us this Saturday at the Avalon Mall. And I also want to thank uh, VOCM uh, for all their support over the year out there. Uh, if we can just prevent one accident this year, uh, we'll 
have done something right. What's your primary bike weigh? I drive a Goldwing. Yeah, no doubt. I was going to guess that. Uh, years ago for me, I had the big Cowie uh, KZ750. Man, that was heavy. Yeah. Good, yeah, good sure. to have you on, Wayne. Uh, good luck and have a safe season to you and all fellow motorcyclists. Patty, thank you very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, when we come back, it's uh, uh, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Day. So we're talking a little bells with balls, and we're also going to talk about the fishery. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Morning, Sid. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm calling about the, the fishing industry here and what's going on. Okay. I mean, we got the, the president of the, the union, Greg Credy, is trying to destroy the processes. That's what he's trying to do. He's asking the, the uh, processing plants in good faith not to bring in fish from outside the province to get the uh, plant workers uh, back to work. Yet at the same time, Brig Pretty is still uh, asking for outside buyers, to ship it out outside buyers. Now, see, once you open the door to one product for the outside buyer packet, it opens the door for all species being shipped outside. Cutting down all the plants in Newfoundland, causing the uh, you know thousands of jobs. I I mean, uh, like uh, Greg Pretty is supposed to be the president, but he's not doing nothing for the plant workers. He's not trying to get the plant workers any work. Uh, why is he not asking uh, the fishing companies in good faith not to fish at all, like he's asking the processors? In good faith, do not bring in any species to uh, get the plant workers back to work. Well, I suppose because, look, a couple of things. It has never made a whole lot of sense to me how the FFAW can represent plant workers and harvesters at the same time when they have distinctly different needs and is distinctly different masters. So there is a risk to the processing sector with bringing in an outside buyer. I, I completely understand it. But both sides... They need or they want what they want when they want it, right? So for the processors, they have one goal in mind, and that would be, I suppose there's an air cooperation, but certainly they need the plants open. They need to be processing whatever species so they can not only bring people to work, but they can make some money. So they're doing what they're allowed to do, and I've, maybe there's some loopholes that we can close up, but they both sides, we pretend, like remember before the season started, there was some camaraderie displayed between the ASAP or the ASP and the FAW to work together towards what could be a difficult season. And as soon as the season opened, that bit of collegiality went right by the wayside and the standoff continued. Now, the reason why that they're saying that they, uh, they didn't accept this deal this time it's because of the uh, slush fund that's put in place. If the fishermen brings in uh, uh, more than their trip limit, that uh, what they brings in more than their trip limit would be, uh, they wouldn't get paid for it. The money would go to ASP and uh, FFAW to put into uh, uh, organizations for children and this kind of stuff. This this is the reason why they said they didn't accept it. The fishermen, if you don't have something in place, the fishermen will go out and bringing more than their trip limit, lock the plants right full, and the crab will go rotten. 
Uh, is the fisherman going to be responsible for what crab that goes rotten? Well, no, would be the short answer. If it's bought, then it becomes the responsibility of the processors, and it doesn't have to rot. It can be stored in cold storage for quite some time, is my understanding. Now, the quality will be jeopardized, but it doesn't have to be lost. There'll be no quality left to it. There's only a certain uh, uh, little time the crab is going to live. I mean, crab don't, you know, the, the crab just can't uh, live out of the water for weeks. I mean, uh, uh, why not putting the idea of, uh, okay, here she let it take the slush whenever all together. Uh, each processing plant got you on a limit. You bring the limit, the, the, the uh, processors take the limit that you was there. What you bring over the limit, that's your problem. That's your loss. Whatever you do, is what, that's your loss. Well, I suppose that's what, you know, present the possibility to sell whatever the plant is willing to buy from you and be able to sell the remainder of whatever is over your trip limit directly to the families down the street on the side of the highway to a restaurant directly. Make it a little bit easier so we don't have these unnecessary rackets. I think the slush fund thing, as I stand alone, makes some sense but because of that shrimp slush fund from years ago and however many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that people don't know where it went that's what i think has made this particular issue a problem if we didn't have that hangover from the shrimp slush fund this might not be the sticking point that it is today well with the slush fund i don't agree with that either because no one knows where that money goes to yeah, but if we had known, like if there was an actual audit and control and understanding of where every dollar went, it wouldn't be a big problem. But because, I, I think if I remember correctly, it was some two or three million dollars that people don't know where it went. And, uh, you know, like the, the Airbnb lobster fishermen, uh, you know, uh, they don't want to sell it to the plants for uh, 10.43 a pound. Yet, they're out parked outside the highways selling it for $8 a pound. You know, like the, like the weekend there, where there was a fisherman from Arbor Britain all the way up there in, in Gloverdang and, and Gander selling it for $8 a pound, cash. Yeah, but the issue was that the processors didn't want to buy the lobster. Not that you couldn't get it for cheaper elsewhere, but I know someone in the restaurant business is paying 15 a pound, so you're telling me I can buy it for 8 bucks a pound? Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, they were in Gloverdang and Gander this weekend, $8 a pound. It's a pretty good deal. Mother's Day coming. Yes. Now, uh, like uh, the cod fishery. Okay. Uh, uh, the fisherman comes in, they weighs back their cod. A lot of them brings in their cod fish. They weighs it back, they keeps it, they takes it to their stages, and they processes it. Now, they don't have a processing license. They haven't got to follow the, the FIA uh, rules and regulations. That's the Food Inspection I, Agency, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're going to a uh, fishing stage. They're processing the codfish on wooden tables and all kinds of germs and bacteria because it's not uh, uh, clean properly. Yeah, but you're just talking about head off and gutted, right? Oh, no, they're splitting it and selling it and selling it that way. They're actually processing it. I never really thought about uh, it like that. Uh, and then they're turning around and selling it for cash. Now, do, they, do they, these people... Put this thing under EI, or do they claim on their income tax that they made all this money? All this tax money that they made? I mean, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, some might, some probably don't. 
I don't know. I wouldn't say very many of them does. Yeah, I suppose if, if, you, if you're an enterprise owner and you ever got audited and they, the CRA will have access to all the information regarding exactly what your individual quota was, I suppose you can always say, well, I didn't catch my quota if I didn't sell directly to the plant, which there would be, of course, a paper trail, uh, as opposed to selling on the side of the road or whatever the case may be. Uh, Sid, final words to you, sir, before I get to the 10 o'clock news, of which I'm late. Okay. For which. I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else? Uh, well, uh, all the, uh, as far as I'm concerned, every species out there should be brought to a plant, weighed, weighed off, and whatever the, the price the plants are buying, the uh, fishing enterprises should have to put that in on their uh, income tax. Appreciate the time, Sid. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. I appreciate the patience there. Bonnie and Alana, you're next to talk about bells with balls. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, the 8th of May is indeed World Ovarian Cancer Day. And to talk about the Bells with Balls fundraisers, Bonnie Morgan and Alana Walsh Giovannini join us online. Number three, good morning to you both. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing very well. How are you, ladies? Uh, good morning, Patty. Thank you so much for having us on today. I'm happy to do. Let's just start with talking about ovarian cancer, period. Give us some of the numbers and what people need to know about that particular cancer. Uh, well, um, ovarian cancer is uh, diagnosed um, at late stages normally because there are no current um, uh, screening tests for ovarian cancer, and a PAP test does not detect ovarian cancer. So it's normally uh, diagnosed at a late stage. And um, approximately one woman per week in Newfoundland, Labrador, will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer. What's the survival rate? It's not great, Patty, because um, uh, they estimate that roughly 75% of those women will succumb to the disease within five years because it is diagnosed in, in the late stages. What do we know about the genetic component of, of ovarian cancer? Uh, well, uh, over 25% of ovarian cancer is genetic. Uh, that's why family history is, is, is such an important predictor for it. Um, there's also a correlation between breast, colon, and prostate cancers. Um, so we always say that if there's a history of any of these cancers in your family, uh, you can get genetically tested in the province to see if you carry any of the known genes. And we- they're discovering new genes every day. Every day. That's, that's where uh, the predominant uh, amount of research is being carried out. So is the Ovarian Cancer Research and Education Fund simply something at Memorial University, or is this something that's nationwide? Um, actually, Bells with Balls was formed um, to focus solely on Newfoundland. Uh, we raise monies for research and education, and all of our monies um, for research go to Memorial University in one capacity or another. Uh, they could go towards an MRF grant, which is a um, medical research foundation grant that uh, funnels through uh, Memorial University. Uh, also, as well, we uh, fund uh, various masters and PhD PhD students uh, for their work in research at Memorial. 
but the Ovarian Cancer Research and Education Fund is a fund that we that was set up by us, and it is just in Newfoundland and Labrador. So what's the relationship between it and Bells with Balls, or is Bells with Balls simply an opportunity to restock the funding? Absolutely. We are, we are the fundraising arm for the Ovarian Cancer Research and Education Fund at MON. Tell us about it. <laughs> well, we're a group of nine uh, volunteer women, um, and uh, we fundraise just about every type of capacity. Um, always try to make it unique. That's right, for education and for research. And, um, again, it's not just for the research because, again, with the education component where we educate uh, not only the general public, but also we provide uh, funding to bring some education to the actual medical personnel at Memorial. Uh, That could be in the form of helping to fund a dry lab uh, to improve their uh, skills or medical skills, uh, as well as offering accredited courses to update and uh, educate uh, physicians on ovarian cancer. So this go around, if I'm not mistaken, I think you've joined forces with my buddy Roger Monder at Upsky Down Films to make your own documentary, or did I dream that? No, you're absolutely right. Roger attended one of our first um, big chill functions down at Atlanta and Bob Giovannini's house back in 2018 and uh, the next day he contacted us and asked if uh, we were interested in him doing a, some sort of production for us and I think he called us about or texted us about 11.30 and I think 11.31 we went back and said yes we'd love for you to do that. <laughs> yes and, and you mentioned you said it, did you dream it well it was a dream come true for us because um, initially when Roger uh, we met with Roger. He he proposed to do some uh, vignettes, if you will, just for promotional purposes. Uh, and then he he set out and he interviewed uh, so many of us for well over a full day, over eight hours or so. And to our surprise and delight, he ended up with a 34-minute documentary called Sounding the Bells, Our Stories. And basically, it's the stories of five Newfoundland women and their journey with ovarian cancer. And each one is different and unique. When can people see it? I'm just going to guess it's today. It's tonight at (laughs) 7 (laughs) o'clock. Because this is World Ovarian Cancer Day, and we thought it was a great day to promote it to the general public. Uh, It's at 7 p.m. this evening at the main auditorium uh, in the Faculty of Medicine. And there's a complimentary viewing and complimentary parking in Lot 30. At Lot 30. Okay. Uh, Last one before I let you go, and you offer whatever additional information you'd like. So we talked about the genetic component. We talked about family history. But what are some of the warning signs if you don't know your family history possibly? Because not everybody does. So what do people need to look out for to get required additional screening? Well, um, some of the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer are bloating, um, abdominal pain, change in bowel or bladder habits. And, and we usually uh, say, and I, I guess, Patty, the thing is, if any of these things last over a couple of weeks, you really probably should get them checked because uh, some things like that would normally go away in a couple of weeks if there wasn't something going on. So we always say if, if you have something that lasts, 
like bloating, because that's all I had when I was diagnosed, um, you know, make sure you get it checked. And basically, uh, oftentimes, um, this disease can be masked by uh, or mistaken for other diseases. Um, it has very similar properties to menopause, uh, which every woman experiences, um, and uh, also irritable bowel. Uh, so it has, uh, um, yeah, uh, what we always try our best to, our mantra, I guess, is, is if you don't get the results that you want in terms of attention by your physician for that particular, uh, if you know there's something wrong, please continue to, to look, continue to ask, continue to uh, fight and be an advocate for your health. I appreciate the time this morning, ladies. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye? We'd like to, first of all, um, oh, there, there's a, a, new, uh, a new a new study that was carried out on the west coast of Canada. Uh, it's called opportunistic cell congestomy. But what it means, uh, Patty, is um, women who are of age or who have hereditary predisposition concerns for ovarian cancer to have their fallopian tubes removed at the time of any abdominal surgery because the latest research indicates that most ovarian cancers don't actually start in the ovaries. They start in the fallopian tubes. Appreciate the time this morning, ladies. Good luck with Bells with Balls and the screening of the documentary this evening. And thank you, thank you for Patty. your continued support, Patty. We really, truly appreciate it. Happy to do it. Nice to speak with you this morning. Take good care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. It's Bonnie Morgan and Alana Walsh, Giovanni. Uh, bells with balls. Let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning to you. Yeah, I just wanted to have a little talk about uh, running up the 149th Kentucky Derby. Sure. Which was a good one, like I say. And when it comes to the odd makers, uh, like I say, that, that horse that came in, she came in at 50 to 1. 15 to 1, wasn't it? 50. Madge was 50 to 1? Yeah. No, I think it was 15. 15, was it? Yeah, 15 to 1. 15 to 1. Yeah, no horse under uh, Javier Castellano was 50 to 1. Oh, I see. Well, I must misunderstood that. No problem. I wanted to be corrected. And now I'm talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like when he came out with those odd makers, he said the Toronto Maple Leafs had a good chance of winning the cup. Well, after the first round, they were were the favorite. Yeah, but it seems like they're... Uh, never come true. There was a poor game last night. Like I say, you had play, you had players there. You know, like I say, two top players only had two shots in forty minutes. It was a dreadful game. It, it just was. Uh, the uh, the Panthers didn't play that great either. But the so-called Big Four or the Co Four Core Four on Toronto were absolutely invisible. Yeah, like I say, well the chances are gone down to zero now for Toronto if I get out of this because. I think Florida's going to take the fourth one in Florida. I'm not going to be surprised. Yeah. The Leafs look particularly deflated. But they're definitely not going to get out of this round. Doesn't look like it. No, but they ain't going to get out of this round. So that's all I caught about. Like I say, there's a lot of displeased uh, Maple Leaf fans today. And like I say, but that's it, I suppose, in sports. Like I always said, there's a winner and there's a loser. Yeah, and it looks like the Panthers will be part of the winners going forward. It's only happened four times in history that a team was down 0-3 and came back to win a seven-game series, so it's bleak. 
Yeah, well, that's, that's all I wanted to talk about. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, so Madge, 15-1, Castellano. And then two fills, Angel Vampire, the $1 Superfecta paid $15,500. Horse racing is not what it once was. The sport of kings has a lot of black marks hanging over its head, whether it be the doping of horses, the number of horses that had to be put down at that at Churchill Downs since the 27th of April. That's seven horses died at the track. Yikes. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Dr. Ern Clute, he's the former president of St. John's Soccer. He's in the queue to talk about the Canadian Hall of Famer, the Canadian Soccer Hall of Famer, Cossette Gary, the America wants to talk about Spirit of Newfoundland. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Where do you want me to start here, David? David's busy on the phone. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the former president of St. John's Soccer. That's Dr. Ern Clute. Dr. Clute, you're on the air. Yes, sir. I'd like to pay tribute to a good friend, Cossette Gary. I call him a good friend because I've known him for since I was in my teens, and that's a long time ago. Uh, Gus was a, a tremendous supporter of soccer. In fact, uh, I, I suppose the soccer expansion uh, that occurred during his term, uh, he was a former president of Newfoundland too, Soccer Association. And uh, when he came to St. John's, uh, after serving the St. Lawrence Laurentians, the hotbed of soccer in the province as we know, uh, he got involved in St. John's soccer. And he and his good friend Ben Lake did uh, yeoman service. And I was a young fellow just taking out principal of school here, and they thought we should have somebody <laughs> that was getting a bit known around uh, to take over St. John's soccer. So I got tabbed. But in addition to that, he selected four Newfoundlanders to attend soccer uh, coaching school in McGill University. And I was one of the ones that he tabbed, which had a lasting impression on me, of course because I entered the coaching ranks as well here in Newfoundland and at one point coached an All-Newfoundland champion, so that worked out all right. But Gus was a tremendous person, a tremendous host. If you had the pleasure to dine at his table, you, you would know that. But he was a, 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 a walking legend for years in, in, in the land of soccer, not only here, but as you know by his honors, across Canada. It's interesting you talk about going uh, uh, up along for some coaching tutelage because one thing that's largely been absent through a lot of modern sports, even when I was a young athlete, is that coaches by and large were moms or dads and yes. did not really have the fine-tuned coaching acumen that you really need to progress as a player and as teams. So that must have had a major league impact. Yes, it did. And uh, <clears throat> all four of us that were up in this province um, – I just forget the names now, but uh, one in Corner Brook, one in Mid Central Newfoundland, and myself in St. John's area and what have you. We, um, I think we had a, a contribution because he eventually ended up as president of, of the St. John's Soccer League, and uh, that was enjoyable. We got to know uh, uh, Mr. Etchigary and Ben Lake socially, of course, apart from the, the soccer wars. And uh, Gus was a player, of course, for St. Lawrence, and a rugged one he was. 
<laughs> not surprised. I mean, if, you, if you knew Russ, Gus, uh, you know that he, you're in a game where you played against Gus. Uh, he was a, a rugged, rugged individual. And he had the pleasure at one point of suspending me. I had been into a fracas on the soccer team and around the soccer field. And uh, uh, he spared nothing. He, he threw me uh, suspension for so many games, what have you. But that was life. I uh, admired the man immensely, and, and I think his contribution in soccer uh, needs to be uh, touted. Uh, I agree 100%. That's why I added it to my thoughts off the top of the program this morning. Not only the role in the rescue of the Pollux and Truxon, Truxon and Pollux, pardon me, and his role as a fisheries advocate, but absolutely his role in sports, soccer particularly. And down on the boot. If you haven't been down there playing soccer, you really don't know how passionate that, pro- that part of the province is. Regarding soccer, whether it be in Bjorn or Lawn or St. Lawrence, it is huge. It's a big, big deal. Yes, because uh, even if you came from the Bjorn Peninsula, they, they, uh, everybody around here thought you must be involved in soccer. So I came in here, and the Guards Association contacted me to play. Excuse me. I didn't even own a pair of soccer boots. So I went down to a sports shop and bought a pair of soccer shoes and went up and tried out and made the team and ended up for several years as um, and eventually ended up as, like I say, president of the league. But it was quite an experience to me because apart from the, 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 the athletics involved and what have you, it was a, a real training ground too because I did end up in a number of um, places where it came in handy to have a bit of confidence, I guess. I spent 30 years as a professor at university, so <laughs> you get up before people every day, you need to run into people along your life's path, like Gus Echigari. Uh, but anyway, he was a good friend too, apart from that. I learned a lot about a variety of things from Gus. So, Earn, let's hear it now. How many games suspended for what? Well, we had a racket of fight, we'll say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a player with, uh, who was known to be a rugged individual, too, and I had words on the field, and on the way out, he clocked, cold clocked me in. So we had a little dust-up. Well, we had a big dust-up. <laughs> Fair enough. So I imagine every 50-50 ball with that guy, someone's going to get cracked off. That's it, yeah. Good to have you on, Ern. Gus didn't show any pity. <laughs> yeah. But I've also, like I say, uh, been invited to his house for dinner, too, you know, that kind of thing. So, good experiences. Really appreciate you sharing your uh, thoughts on Gus this morning. Thanks a lot, Ern. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Ern Cluett, former president of St. John's Soccer Association. Let's go to line number two. Margo, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you so much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Good stuff. Uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, myself and Gary attended the Spirit of Newfoundland Nashville Nights this past Saturday, May the 6th, held at the Elks Club, and it was incredulous. A dinner and a show that uh, is second to none, it was flawless. The men and women who sang and entertained us, I mean, my goodness, the talent is uh, there are no words, honest to goodness. Uh, Shelley Neville, Keith Power, um, Jackie Sullivan, Carla Pilgrim, 
and I can only remember two names of the musicians, Boomer Stamp, who Shelley said is her uncle, <laughs> and uh, Marco Fiore, and there was two other guitarists, but they were sensational, and the the meal was, oh, it was really, really good. But I just wanted to promote these guys because they are doing such a service for Newfoundland and Labrador, and um, I know there's another show coming this Friday, uh, the 12th, uh, Paddy McGinty's Wake, and one two weeks after that. So if you can look up the Spirit of Newfoundland's uh, outlay of their shows, or up- upcoming shows, uh, Kathy Hicks and, of course, Peter Halley are the backbone behind the Spirit of Newfoundland, mm-hmm. um, you know, it would be a great, um, a, gr- a great, as a matter of fact, this is, this weekend is Mother's Day. So Friday the 12th would be a nice preamble to getting mom out and really treating her. <laughs> and we had the good fortune of sitting near the stage, and we were sat next to a good friend of yours, Craig, who spoke very highly of you. Craig who? Craig, who uh, is a cook out on the uh, Coast Guard. Oh, okay. I know who that is. <laughs> okay. I don't recall his last name. At Sharon, I believe her name is. All good. But so some of the performers you mentioned, I mean, mm-hmm. Peter, Shelley Neville, boy, oh boy, Carla Pilgrim. Yeah. Uh, Keith Power apparently does a pretty good Patty Daly impression, wow. which I have to hear one of these days. <laughs> and Shelley actually sang at my father's funeral. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, well, that was very fortunate because she is spectacular. She is that. Really and truthfully. And if I may take just a little aside and pass our condolences on to uh, Gus H. Carey's family, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm sure you're aware that Cassie Brown, my aunt, wrote the, uh, the book Standing in the Danger. And when she was researching, she tried to get in touch with Gus. And, of course, Theo and a lot of the family were involved in the rescue. And he would never take her phone calls. And she had actually had to pack up and go down and visit him to, <laughs> to actually get to speak to Gus, who had the great dimension to the book. I'm glad to hear you enjoyed the Spirit of Newfoundland production, and I appreciate the uh, thoughts regarding Gus. And thanks for your time, Margo. And one other thing, okay. I'd like to say a special Happy Mother's Day to everybody who is fortunate enough to still have their mother. And um, just have a great weekend. But thank you again for taking my call. Happy to do it. Take care, Margo. Thanks, honey. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Wilfred's here to talk about car warranties. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Wilfred, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, better a car dealer in Nova Scotia. I don't know the name of it because he bought me a car. I bought a car about, about two years ago. On the way back from Cornbrook, I lost the motor. But, but three weeks ago, I phoned for insurance and no there's no warranty on it. There's only 30 days warranty on it. So it's a used vehicle? Yeah, a used vehicle. The arm was given to you. They drove them down Newfoundland arm, drove them right to your driveway. Okay. And the 30 day warranty, not very much warranty on a motor. 
I don't know how many, well, I, I can't speak with any authority here, but I don't think there's a whole lot of operations out there that offer a, much of an extended warranty on a used vehicle on a variety of components, including the powertrain. Yeah, but he told me I could buy, buy extra warranty after the motor went, so that's no good. They should have told me that when I bought the car. You're telling me they didn't offer you an, an, an extended warranty to purchase? Because, I mean, no, that's a huge moneymaker. There's three vehicles there and that broke down. The little place I live. Come from the same place. I said, my sister got about $4,000 spent on hers. And there's a trucker come from the same place. I can see her from my door there. Broke down. <laughs> no warranty. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a pretty expensive purchase to simply just take your chances. So what did they provide you with so far as inspections, the most recent inspection? Well, it's a 30-day warranty on them. Yeah, I heard that part, yeah. Apparently, uh, for the motor and everything. That's it. They never have me nothing. I've got to get her towed home now, so I'm going to grab them about $1,000 and I'll get her towed home from Cornerbrook. How old is the vehicle? 2015. Yeah, so you're just conveniently outside the major coverage of generally five years, 100,000 kilometers. So yeah. I'm sorry to hear that it happened to you. So when you call them, they simply say, too bad, 30 days are gone, you're out, you're out of luck. Yeah, I have luck. I think you should be better warned than dead on them. Why did you go to Nova Scotia to buy? Pardon? Why did you go to Nova Scotia to buy? Just curious. Well, they almost give them to you. Right. I bought a car one, one day, and next, two days after that, she was there in my driveway. So no wonder they were willing to provide that level of service and the quote-unquote giving it away because it had a motor on its last legs. Trucker, same thing. The 2017 truck sitting in a driveway up there. Yeah. Same thing. To get that bit of warranty or something like that. No argument come from me. How much money did you spend on the vehicle? Seventeen. Seventeen thousand dollars. Seventeen thousand dollars. And I was sitting on the way in Cornbrook. How many kilometers were on it? Uh, about hundred thousand on there. Okay. Well, sorry that it happened. How much does it cost to replace the engine? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Probably thousand, four or five thousand dollars, probably. Yeah, probably. You know, those days. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry that it happened to you. And, you know, I guess we'll be playing a bit of buyer beware. But to, you know, some advice that people would have given me in the past, because the most recent vehicle I bought was also used. And, yeah. you know, it's always a good idea to spend that extra hundred. I'm not talking to you now. I'm talking to anybody else here. Always not a bad idea to spend that extra hundred, hundred plus dollars to get it inspected at a garage that you choose so that you can get an additional layer of comfort that you know what you're getting yourself into. So it's one thing for a used car dealer to say well here's the most recent inspection but if it's me i'm taking that vehicle to the garage of my picking and i'm going to do another inspection just to make sure yeah well my sister got one he, she, he only had her a few days and toy rod went on her he carried the garage and gamble and he told him he should never went on the road in the first place like it 
Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that either. There's a lot of... Oh. Now, there's reputable used car salespeople out there. Of course there are. But unfortunately, history has shown that there's far too many who are willing to sell you a, what they know to be a lemon, but they don't necessarily give you the straight dope on it before you put your hard-earned money out of the cash and the barrel head. I appreciate the time. Wilford, anything else you want to say? Yeah, make a bet for other buyers, sellers. Yeah. That's all it is. Thanks for this. But I'm sorry it happened. Myself, I think these bunch of crooks. <laughs> well, this outfit didn't do you any favors, that's for sure. No. Thank you very much, sir. Take good care of yourself. All right. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, and to not be offered the opportunity to buy an extended warranty from a third-party seller, of which there are many, and they're not all created equal, it's certainly well worth your time to look at uh, an evaluation of some of these third-party warranty outfits. Some are really great, some maybe not so much. And inside the dealership, you know, when you go to buy used or, used or new, in the new, they, of course, have a certain amount of Profit built into the sticker price, the MSRP. Then there's something known as a holdback that's based on volume that the dealer would have on the lot. So it's it's almost impossible to get their cost known to you so that you can negotiate a price. And far too often these days, a new vehicle, the sticker price is what it is. You pay it or you don't, especially for some of the most popular uh, imports in particular. But, you know... No harm in it. I, some of my buddies in the new car business probably don't want to hear this, but ask them what kind of holdback they've got. See what kind of reaction you get on that front. And yeah, don't hesitate, and it's not rude to say, well, I'd like to take that used vehicle to a garage of my choosing, get another inspection done so that I know what I'm getting myself into. All right, let's go to line number two. Ryan, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, uh, Patty, to you and your listeners. Uh, Patty, I heard uh, the first off, um, I know you want to talk about uh, Mr. Etchgary, but I uh, just want to mentioned i heard Mer- merv wiseman on earlier and uh, i want to publicly congratulate merv um for the caller for the listeners who didn't hear um this past weekend at the liberal convention not sure where it was but he he uh, passed a resolution um for a dedicated cormorant search and rescue helicopter for five for five-wing goose bay labrador um that's an incredibly important resolution and as you noted patty that's just the, po- the political end of it uh, just because the Liberal Party agrees to this resolution doesn't mean that the Liberal administration will, but please God they will, and they'll follow through on this, and we'll have a dedicated search and rescue helicopter for Labrador. I mean, the fact that, that we don't have one now is ridiculous, but better late than never, and, and the sooner the better, obviously. You know, uh, there was, if the party, or pardon me, if the government was as serious about it as the party is at a policy convention, then when Minister of National Defense Anita Anand made her way to Five Wing Goose Bay, it would have been a double announcement. It would have been search and rescue capacity, of which there's very little, none for the sea. There's some for the ground search. But in addition to NORAD spending, which is absolutely important for the four northern bases that are going to get that level of investment, but I'll... I'll see it. Well, I'll believe it when I see it because policy convention stuff is, I think, baby steps. And I think Merv acknowledged that much because the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Patty. The bottom line is a Cormorant search and rescue helicopter will save lives in Labrador, will save the lives of mariners off Labrador. And it, it needs to be done immediately. So it looks good. On, well done, Merv Wiseman. Yep, fair enough. Uh, Mr. Etchgary, um, I've heard some of the talk on your show this morning. And I heard you mention as well, uh, Patty, about how uh, Mr. Etchigary, he's the only man, by the way, I, I call Mr. Nobody else. Um, 
But you made the point about the fact that he had an interesting life outside of the fishery. I mean, I, I think that that would be an interesting uh, a movie, uh, epic novel, movie, however you want to. I, I think he had a fascinating life from, you know, I, I don't know if um, your listeners know how the Echeverry family came to be here. Um, so the story goes that um, his grandfather, Michel, he was a Basque fisherman uh, from France. So he came over on the Grand Banks every year to fish. And they would uh, land in St. Pierre and uh, unload uh, unload the cargo, take on supplies, whatever. Anyway, Michelle Etchegary, uh, Gus Etchegary's grandfather, he uh, met this missus from, um, from Lamoline. And anyway, um, they fell in love. And at, at the end of the season, as uh, Michelle Etchegary's boat was sailing back for, for France, Michelle Etchegary, he dove over the side of the boat and he swam back for the woman that he loved. And uh, the boat wouldn't turn around because uh, Michelle Etchegary forfeited his wages, so the rest of the crew got to divvy it up. But, I mean, the fact that that's how he came here was for the love of a missus from Lamoline. I thought, you know, he just a lot of interesting stories. And then from that, Mr. Etchegary's first memory was the 1929 tsunami. Um, and it's written in his, in his book about how he remembers, I don't know, we was two or three or four sitting at a table in St. Lawrence and watching a plate of sliced potatoes warming on a, a cast iron pot and then the earthquake hit and you know all hell broke loose and 29 people died and, and then from that like you said he was a teenager he was 17 years old when him and his father and uh, his older brother took part in the the rescue 1942 rescue with american sailors from the battleship truxton the supply ship pollux and so actually i don't know if you know this or not patty but cassie brown the great newfoundland writer she wrote about uh um, what happened but the the interaction between Mr. Etchgary and one of the sailors um, on the beach that day in, in a book, Standing in the Danger. And uh, Bill Butterworth was his name, Patty, um, the young fella that uh, Mr. Etchgary tried to save, but uh, he didn't make it. Uh, anyway, during the war, Mr. Etchgary, then he went to work on the, on the base in Argentia. He worked in the submarine shop um, repairing a he did electrical work on submarines and, and uh, support craft, that kind of stuff. And from there, he got his first job with the uh, Monroe Export Company. It became Fishery Products Limited, the forerunner of the Fishery Products International. And I remember lots of days, Ms., uh, Patty Cotton, uh, Mr. Etchegary, about uh, Isle of Morse and places like Isle of Morton, Galtus, and building uh, fresh fish plants in those communities. I was in Isle of Morse just a couple of years ago, with, uh, three or four years ago, with Fishanel, and they, actually on the day they tore down the plant. And of course, golf as you hear about resettlement and whatever. But the bottom line is, Mr. Etchgary was at, he was at the helm of the fishery in, in its heyday, and uh, you know he served on ICNAF and, and NAFO, and uh, he led the Newfoundland fishery for you know for a few decades. And he often said, Patty, that um, one of the biggest things about the fishery that uh, that drove him, that boiled his Newfoundland blood, was the fact that he had a pledge, he had a promise from Smallwood when he was premier that. Um, he didn't want the 200-mile limit. He, he wanted Canada's jurisdiction to go beyond the 200-mile limit. Gus Etchegary wanted to go to the edge of the continental shelf to protect um, migratory stocks. Once they, He didn't want a 200-mile limit because once migratory stocks swam over that, they would be caught by the foreigners, which is exactly what happened. So one of his biggest regrets was the fact that he had that promise in writing that, that, the, that the jurisdiction would go to the edge of the continental shelf beyond 200 miles. But then that that didn't happen, and um, I mean he he brought that up for years. He fought that for years, and I, I got to say he was um, 
if Mr. Etchinger was around today, and I had many conversations with him, Patty, as, as you know, daily conversations for decades, but um, he would say, and I would say this to all your listeners out there and all the people who are involved in um, the, the crab price, price dispute, where we are in the, in the fishery today, what he would say, Patty, he would say that this is an absolute cesspool of corruption, is what he would say. He would say that we need an inquiry from the fishery from the inside out. I know people have argued for years that we've had all kinds of inquiries. Why would you need another one? We have, may have had many investigations, but how many recommendations were followed through on? How many improvements were made? That's what drove Mr. Etchigari by. He had, he had a passion and a drive for the fishery that is absolutely un, unmatched. And, you know... Hello, Ryan? Are you still there, Ryan? I can kind of hear. I'm hearing you. Okay, you just dropped off for a second. Continue. Well, he'll just be missed, but he would call it successful uh, corruption. He would say that from some of the people who've who, who who said lovely things about him, he what he would say back to them is, "Get off your arse and do something about the fishery. Improve it. Improve the stocks. Um, improve the man. Insist on better management. Insist on better science. Insist on better leadership." These are the things that he would say. No, no doubt about it. I can hear him saying exactly that in my mind's ear. Uh, just a very quick one on his role that he played as they they uh, rescued some 186 survivors of that uh, the, uh, the Truxton and the Pollux. On the Truxton was a man named Lanier Phillips. I've interviewed him. He actually has an honorary degree from Memorial University. Of the 46 survivors from that vessel, he was the only one who was black. He was uh, out cold. When he awoke, surrounded by white women who were trying to bathe him, and in fact, the first time they'd seen a black man trying to wash the black off him, he said famously, no, ma'am, that's the color of my skin. He also went on to talk about had he washed ashore in Georgia and was found to be surrounded by white women bathing him, he would have been lynched and they would have been branded and uh, uh, drove out of town. So Lanier Phillips is a fascinating story, and I know that Gus would have heard and spoke to Lanier over the years as well. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Patty. You're absolutely right. Um, the last thing I would say is that uh, Mr. Etchgary wrote a book. It's called Empty Nets, How Greed and Politics Wiped Out the World's Greatest Fishery. And from my perspective, Patty, that should be mandatory reading in every single classroom in Newfoundland and Labrador and across Canada because it is one of the biggest Canadi- one of Canada's biggest crime stories. Uh, Patty, finally, I'd like to say condolences to Kay. Mrs. Etchgary, I-, I call her, of course. And to Mr. Etchgary's boys, to Grant and to Glenn, and to his entire family. But uh, um, Newfoundland and Labrador is a lesser place today without Mr. Etchgary. I appreciate your time and echo your sentiments. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Whew. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, my dad used to always say, you don't discuss two things, religion and politics. Well, I'm going to put my foot into it this morning in a big way. I saw again the weekend there was another mass shooting down in Texas. Eight or ten people were killed. And what did, the, what did the Republican Party do? They came out and they said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll offer you our prayers and our sympathies. You know, Joe... I met a, a United Church minister a good number of years ago, and we were discussing prayer. 
And he said to me, you know, Brian, never ask God for anything that you can do yourself. So to these Republicans, I say, don't go asking God to step in and take over. Don't go using prayer in politics. You can do something about the guns in the United States. And they're making a mockery of religion. No, nothing's ever going to change. You know, in Texas, you don't have to have a license or any training no. to open carry a gun. It's truly remarkable stuff. Uh, I do find, like, American politics is exasperating at the very best of times. Oh. But the conversation regarding gun control is, and I don't care what side you're on in the political spectrum in the United States, the argument, the debate between both sides is idiotic. It's crazy. Uh, I'm going to get religious now. Those gods, now, I'll admit, I'm a sinner. And when I face God, I may not go to heaven. But these gods are going to have to face God, and God is going to say, what did you do for my children who are slaughtered? Do you know, Patty, more people were killed in the last couple of weeks in the States than Timothy McVeigh the other thing was in Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma City. You know, I, I, you know, people can believe in what they believe in, but we're also talking about a document drafted by men uh, yeah. in 1789, I guess. We the people. So God, they can mention it all you like in there, but it was a document that men wrote and men can amend. You know, to pretend that an amendment is untouchable and sacrosanct really shows a, an, an ill-informed opinion or, pardon me, an ill-informed position as to what an amendment means. You know, it's 100 years before there was a light bulb and talking about well-regulated militias and all the rest of it yes by because the gravy seals are going to take on the american military like none of it makes any sense it just truly doesn't to me and that's why i can't even listen to some of those conversations regarding gun control and the second amendment in the united states because they've drawn their line not in the sand but in the concrete and nothing's going to change obviously nothing's going to change if nothing changed after sandy hook then nothing's ever going to change no and you know patty down in the United States, and where she's is on TV, they got a corrupt Supreme Court. They got a corrupt political system. And they look at countries like Canada and laugh at them. Well, you know, I'm glad I'm a Canadian. I wouldn't want to go down to the States for lower money. And they're as corrupt as they come. From Clarence Thomas to John Roberts, the whole lot of them are corrupt. And they'll have to answer to God someday. And I wouldn't want to be them. Now, I've gotten my foot into it. I don't care what I said. I think they're headed to dragging the United States in the wrong place. I'd like to thank you, Paddy. Appreciate the time. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Now, there's an ongoing gun control conversation happening in this country, too, which I happen to take on here. There was some walking back and or what some people refer to as a humiliating climb down by the prime minister and the liberal government regarding bill c21 so you know in this country we can indeed i think still have an honest uh, conversation about it and if we're going to talk about public safety as it pertains to guns then yes we can talk about what kind of weapons might or might not be appropriate but it really does have to start with the fact that we know based on the Association of Police Chiefs and all other types of investigations and evaluations, the guns that are jeopardizing public safety, by and large, are coming across the southern border. 
So if the key focus is not there, we're going to miss the point because we can debate up and down about farmers and hunters and handguns and all this transportation and locking them up and all the rest of it. And it's important. And even on that list of banned guns, I mean, there are some that do the exact same thing as a gun that was banned. Well, it looked different, had a different manufacturer, but they did the exact same thing. So obviously that was deeply flawed right from the get-go. But the focus at the southern border, and yes, there has been an increase in uh, sentencing if and when you're caught with those types of uh, importation of illegal handguns in particular. But that's got to be the focus. Yes, we can talk about weaponry across the country, but there is a conversation to be had in this program if you're so inclined regarding the Bill C-21. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Helen Forsey. She's with the Council of Canadians and joins us this morning. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, good, yes. Yes, I, I'm calling about the, um, well, the Council of Canadians has just uh, written to uh, witness a letter to the Minister, of, the Federal Minister of the Environment, in support of the people uh, on the Port-a-Port Peninsula who are asking for a full environmental impact assessment at the federal level of the uh, the huge mega-project that Mr. Risley and Mr. Paddock uh, are, are plowing ahead with, uh, I should say railroading ahead with, on that fragile peninsula. And we... Um uh, the council back in the fall, when the when there was first all the all the news about it, our, uh, we were uncertain of what what to think about it. But it was obviously a great big deal because, after all, the premier and the prime minister and the chancellor of Germany and uh, the mayor of Stephenville and everybody was in on it. And uh, and uh, so what's what's not to like? Well, but we were a little nervous because it just seemed a little too much of a muchness in a lot of ways. So we started to look into it, and of course we're in favor of going off fossil fuels and into more renewable energy but there's ways to do it and not (laughs) what we found was not this way it's uh, not this place not this project this project is for is not going to benefit um, in any long-term way and in any or in any energy related climate change related way anyone in Newfoundland and Labrador it's all for export to uh, the, all the energy product will be exported to uh, to Europe for profit and um, I would there are there are so many ways that it will damage the environment and the human communities including in, which are mainly indigenous communities on the peninsula itself that it just it, it must not it must not go ahead. Certainly not in the way in the way that it is. So we're um, the the environmental transparency committee of Port of Port people, people on the peninsula, which formed in in response to this um, when they were blindsided by the by the announcements back last summer. Um, they have written a very comprehensive 29-page request to the minister to designate the project for uh, a full federal environmental assessment because the province 
the, the provincial process is not adequate and, and can't be adequate just because of the limitations of the, of the legislation, not to mention the fact that the province is officially right in there like a dirty shirt, as a friend of mine used to say, uh, in, in favour uh, of the project and right, uh, I would say, uh, working with the proponents to, to move it ahead. It, it is actually moving ahead right now with various kinds of preparatory work going on without, without the, uh, in, in the face of opposition from, from the local people. And what happens is then the local people who prote- remember the protest, uh, the blockade by uh, uh, six or eight indigenous women actually um, uh, uh, protesting the disruption of the of the community of mainland's water source back last winter that one still confuses me i mean if there was an offer of some independent uh experts to come in and evaluate the impact of the construction of that data collecting tower uh regarding mainland's water supply yet it was rejected i I really haven't quite understood how is why that was a good idea but anyway it's not my region and it's not my call uh a couple of quick ones are we not presupposing the outcome of an environmental assessment because even inside the impact assessment agency of canada proponents and different organizations, they supply information for the, to be adjudicated at that level versus the agency itself conducts an environmental assessment, if I understand the legislation properly. I, I think you're right. The, 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 you're right, certainly, about the main point that there's no way of assuming that an outcome of, a, of a, uh, even a full environmental assessment will, uh, will be what the, what the people of Port-au-Port Peninsula are, are hoping for, but it is the avenue, the best remaining avenue. They have been working for months now, trying to get uh, trying to get change in different ways. Writing to the writing to the premier, writing to the um, uh, to the ministers, talking to uh, trying to get uh, meetings with the uh, with the proponent. And uh, I think there were there was one early on a very inadequate one or two early on a very very inadequate ones where the the type of public consultation where a bunch of a bunch of uh, proponents and their their paid experts get up in front of in front of a crowd, make a long a long presentation and then take what they are pleased to call questions, um, but uh, but that is not consultation and and um, and there was an, a recent one actually. Uh, a recent meeting that the that the people demanded and finally got on the 26th i think it was i think it was wednesday uh, of a week and a half ago where where they, <laughs> there's a video of that that you could watch a 4 hour meeting where the the people a uh, hundred people gathered and just went after they put on quite the quite the demonstration of knowledge and opposition in the the, the um I've only seen a couple of uh, a couple of initial um you know minutes of the of the uh, of the meeting, but by video, but um, the they flum the the experts and the proponents were flummoxed. I mean, they didn't know what to do <laughs> because these people know exactly what they're talking about, not on the level of the scientific expert 
expertise that they will be getting uh, if they're successful in having a proper environmental assessment. But on the level of what is happening, how it affects their uh, the 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 plants, the wildlife, the environment where they are, and their own communities. That we're talking about 164 offshore. That's the biggest the biggest type of of. Um, wind turbine that there is. They've not been used on land before. The original project was supposed to be an offshore wind project. and uh, But then it got changed, and there's interesting information that they've got by access to information about how exactly and when it got changed to an onshore project instead of offshore. There, it happened right around the time that the... Um, that the uh, uh, Moratorium. changes were being made to to how assessments would be done and the offshore was going to have a thorough assessment if there were more than 10 windmills but there was nothing about an onshore thing so there was um, communication back and forth between the proponents and uh, the provincial minister ministries um, and they decided to move it onshore I, there's all kinds of really shady kind of sounding stuff that has gone on and uh, anyway that that's just that's okay. only one part of it but just, the just environment a second, though. the indigenous the indigenous communities and the way it's been done with the spin and the deception and the offering of money to any any uh, municipality or local service district that will come on board and and not oppose it and uh, indigenous leaders being told it'll be wonderful for them and and accepting that promise from the proponents. Uh, it's just, but the people, 80%, more than 80% of the people, when they did their own door-to-door polling, 80%, more than 80% of the people signed something saying, no, we oppose this, we don't want this. Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that. There's a bunch of moving parts there that makes that... I don't know, reason to be sceptical. So when the ban on wind power was first imposed, there was two bills at the same time, one with the PUB's ability to uh, evaluate Muskrat Falls uh, hydro rates and then the banning of wind projects, and the province bemoaned it because there is an essence of greener when compared to Holyrood, for instance, to generate power through wind. And then when the moratorium was lifted, which is exactly when these projects or proposals were brought onshore versus offshore, so some interesting timing and relations there on that front. Couple of quick questions. So does the Council of Canadians not consider hydrogen one of the go-to fuels? Because the world will need some sort of power wherever we get it, however we get it. Do you not consider hydrogen to be one of the better alternatives? Uh, it's very, very, scientifically and economically, it's very, still very much an open question. There's all kinds of debate in the techn- in the trade uh, publications and everything about whether and how and to what extent it will act, can actually be green. But the, so we're not, you know, we're not talking mainly from the scientific point of view, we're saying that the, if there is a proper impact assessment, that will look at all of that. And the uh, 
Our, our position, I can't speak for the Council of Canadians as a whole, but certainly the discussions we've had in, the, in, in our Newfoundland Labrador chapter uh, have, have talked about the, um, the fact that we need to, we cannot, the world, the, can, the country and the province of the world cannot go on with business as usual. That's, that's a thing of the past now. We have to not just find new sources of energy, but redefine the demand for energy and make Make sure that we are that we are changing enough of the ways we live so that we do not need these massive amounts of energy that come from mega projects. For profit mega projects are not the way to meet energy needs. For profit mega projects use amazing amounts of both fossil fuel energy and just to get just to get going just to happen and uh, and rare earth minerals oh there are all kinds of problems with them if you had what we need is community-based human scale technologies that enable that that uh, enable people in communities to make decisions about how and with with techno- technical help and and financial help how to best meet their and their region's energy real energy needs right but now that's that's a pretty difficult uh, piece of math or exercise to undertake but regardless of its private industry or government or communities or regions taking this on it will have the exact same implications with uh, environmental footprint because if it's a solar panel that Baleen has installed someone had to make it regardless if it was a private company or the government so some of those footprint issues don't necessarily change and your comment about the it's all for export when we talk about climate change is of course a global issue so if if it replaces fossil fuel uses in Germany, isn't that just part of the equation that the Council of Canadians has been very vociferous on? Is replacing the use of fossil fuels or the reliance on? And so what difference does it make if it's in Germany or anywhere else, regardless of it's in this province? Because if and when we can find a way to decommission Holyrood, we will have a very, quote-unquote, green source of power in this province. So what's the concern about export? Well, the one, the one thing is we will have. We're already trying to deal with a uh, with a surplus of uh, of power. The transmission of the surplus of power from uh, Churchill Falls and Muskrat, Muskrat Falls, and we the, the only way that these uh, proponents can make any money off it is by using what power we already have on the on the on the Newfoundland Labrador grid in order to produce the hydrogen and then convert it to the ammonia which will then be shipped in in other other way those processes take energy they also um the shipping to europe takes energy europe is developing many more of its own of its own sources in the in the time it'll take for this thing to actually get get going get producing anything if it does go ahead uh, the uh, the ways that the technology and the markets and the transportation options and all that sort of thing are going to change dramatically. What we know is there's going to be change. And the way to deal with that is not to uh, do hugely harmful mega projects that really, whose rationale is really, really, when you come down to it, and uh, given the investigation that, that the um, Environmental Transparency Committee people and their friends and allies, including ourselves, have done, when you really come right down to it, that is not going to be a green project. There's just all kinds of evidence that it won't be. And the way to get at that 
evidence in a re- reliable way it, without uh, yeah without a lot of interference we hope is the, the only way we can hope to have that done at this point is uh, with a full environmental assessment and you know uh, we're, we're til- we know we're tilting at windmills but uh, okay. that's a, a long tradition in the in the uh, Council of Canadians as well. But inside the world of profitability and whether or not uh, John Risley World Energy GH2 can make any money, that's kind of their problem. Because if there's none of my money going in, then he's they're on their own. And that's why I think you know some protections with uh, lease agreements versus purchasing crown lands. And so just another couple of quick ones here. So you reference uh, repeatedly Indigenous communities. My understanding is none of these turbines are going to be erected on Indigenous land is that not the case the entire peninsula is indigenous land my son <laughs> it's uh, well of yeah. course well we can make that argument but you know we have to and be most we got to play with the facts here. on the peninsula not in stephenville not in kippens not in not in um uh, st george's but but uh, on on the peninsula in cape on cape st george and in um in the small uh what do you call it local service districts most of them are indigenous uh, they belong to the they belong to the bands that have been established. Uh, they are. There was a meeting in uh, in New West Valley last week where five of them came after the after the four hour meeting in uh, in Port of Port. They drove through the night to get to New West Valley to make their case and explain things to um, uh, to a group a group in New uh, a group of provincial environmentalists in uh, in New West Valley. And um, I'm sorry, I forget where I was going with that. Well, the, the issue is regarding indigenous lands. Now, there is such thing as officially this is recognized as indigenous lands because if, if it's because where indi- indigenous peoples live doesn't necessarily make it by the letter of the law, the law of the land, indigenous land. There has been lands carved out, recognized through treaties over the course of decades and centuries. And my understanding was, and I looked at the map, is that any officially recognized indigenous lands were not going to be peppered with windmills. Well, the, uh, the 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 some of the problem there is uh, officially recognized indigenous lands, and that's all. All of that is comes from. I mean, there weren't any officially recognized indigenous lands in uh, in most of Newfoundland and Labrador. But that's not the pro- that's not the fault of the indigenous people. They were there, and it was it was our ancestors who disregarded that and saw this as terra nullius, you know, empty land. And um, they couldn't understand people who, among other things, people who were nomadic rather than settled in cities and, and, and towns. Anyway, that's, that's another issue. But the, the fact remains, the majority of people living on the Port of Port Peninsula, living on the land that is involved, in an area about the size of Metro St. John's, there are going to be 164 of these windmills. The the wildlife, the plants, the people. Ha- well, the wildlife and the plants have nowhere else to go. There are there's there are there are plants and wildlife there. There are. Um, Ecosystems there they're not found anywhere else in the world uh, it's uh, that's been documented there are there are uh, and they can't i mean even the the lynx and the moose that are out there the lynx that are in danger or or uh, threatened and the moose that are 
you know, everywhere else in Newfoundland as well. But they have nowhere else to go off that peninsula. There's a tiny little isthmus with a highway on it, and that's the only way to get on or off. And when you get all the roads, the thing is it's, it's hectares and hectares and hectares of land that are going to be taken up by roads and lines, and not just the turbines themselves. And they are going to, the density is going to be, it'll be like having 104, 164 uh, of these unprecedentedly large, giant windmills all over St. John's and Mount Pearl. I appreciate the time this morning, Helen. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break. When we come back, we're talking to MCP. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just on one particular point there, I don't want to shortchange our guests because we're almost up against the news, is the request uh, sent to Minister Stephen Giebel for the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada to get involved in whatever approval or denial of this proposal for World Energy GH2 in the Port of Port Peninsula. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is much like going to the province for final approval, environmentally speaking, or a release from environmental assessment, the Impact Agency of Canada, they don't do environmental assessments. They ask for information they send uh, companies or proponents back to the drawing board if they see any gaps or shortcomings or have further questions. So I don't think, or I, my understanding is they don't actually do any of these environmental assessments. They act just very similarly to our own provincial ministry of environment. So the inclusion of Gibo, I'm not sure what that gets us, unless the insinuation is, quite simply, that the federal government would be much more concerned with and adhere to anything regarding environmental protection than the province would be. Because both groups, it, whether it be philosophical differences, whether it be the province is actually bullish on wind and wants to move forward with this project for whatever reason, whether it be provision of hydrogen and or the creation of jobs, but the province and the Department of Environment and the federal government, whether it be the department and or the impact, ass uh, impact assessment agency, neither actually do the work. They review and either approve or deny the work. If there's something different to it that I'm missing, you can let me know right after the news. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Now let us go to line number three. Say good morning to Dr. James Westhazen. Good morning, doctor. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm still like in trying to figure out what's um, going on with this MCP audit system. And, you know, it's an ongoing battle, I guess. And still trying to get people in Newfoundland and Labrador to, you know, just open up their minds and having a conversation with one another. You know? Do you have any updates on this front? Um, yes, I did. Um, I received some, some more audits come back on Friday. I probably got a handful of one to seven code um, chronic disease management audits that came back to me on Friday. They all got adjusted. Every single one of them got adjusted. 30% of them got taken off. And I end up getting paid 30% less than a phone call visit after I spend 15 minutes with these, um, with my patients. You know, so they, you know, they, they're hammering down and they're going to keep doing what they're doing. And there's nothing I can do about it. Um, I just wanted to, um, I wanted to put a couple of thoughts out there. Because um, I was talking to, to Ms. Linda Swain last week. Um, and she asked me a question. She asked me about this blended capitation, if that would fix the problem. And I didn't really know the answer. Um, and I still don't really know the answer. But I do want to throw a couple of thoughts out there just for people across Newfoundland and Labrador, just to think about and just to communicate with one another. 
you know, the, the fact that a lot of physicians are after leaving the province, you know, why do you think that is? You know, why do you think, you know, do you think people just don't like the province or they don't like the patients or something else is happening? You know, why are these all these new uh, um, models coming out? So there's a new collaborative clinic model that's opening up and collaborative clinics are opening up which means physicians are looking for alternative ways to practice medicine. You have a new model coming out for, 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 for payment, uh, a blended capitation. Why are physicians looking for new ways to get payment? Why are they looking for other ways to practice medicine? Just a quick question, doctor. Is it the NLMA or individual doctors driving the bus towards collaborative care clinics, of which the province is saying some 35 across the province? Or is this being driven by the department? Because they are two different things and two different motivations. I think it's been driven by MCP audits themselves because they've been harassing people so much over over so many years, and, and physicians have no way they have no way no input they have no way to change the system, and they are looking for other ways to try and you know just to make a living. Just to paint you a picture, I, I just want to paint a picture to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Now I'm not attacking any physicians whatsoever. Personally, I think that any physician should be able to practice medicine whichever way he pleases. You know, it's your practice, it's your degree, and you know you do with it whatever you like. That's my opinion. Now, let's just think, for example, say you have one physician. Like, say, I'm not attacking anyone. Let's say you have one physician who sees 100 patients a day, um, and he sees them for three minutes each, each, and he writes opioid prescriptions. And he builds the lowest-rate service, which is a one-to-one which, for which you pay 30, get paid $32. That physician will never, ever get audited, right? Now you have another physician who's very thorough and takes her time or his time and, and, and sees, 10, uh, sees 20 to 25 patients a day, wants to spend 25 minutes with each one of them because it's chronic disease management, and builds a service which is $6 more than a phone call visit or which is $15 more than the lowest rate code, one-to-one. So it's a one-to-seven, $47, versus a one-to-one, which is $32. Now, if you do 100 $32 services for three minutes prescriptions, that's fine. You don't get audited. However, if you do like in 17 or 18, I only do one a day and I get audited. So they have physicians who spend 15 minutes with patients to see 10, 25 patients a day. They get audited consistently. Never mind the general assessment. If you do a five system examination on the patient, um, you know, which is your heart and your lungs and ENT and whatever, so the five systems, right? You can bill a general assessment and you get paid $75. Now, if a physician chooses to do that, you know, I see no problem why a physician shouldn't be able to do like in two or three of those a day if he wants to, if that's the way they want to practice medicine. I can guarantee you that physician will get audited significantly, significantly on that. So you have this a physician who's, who's doing 20 to 25, 1 to 7 codes a day. They all get adjusted back to a one-to-one code, which means that physician is losing 50% of income. So what does the physician do? The physician still provides a service because it's the right thing to do, but the physician is losing income. So what happens? The physician doesn't have the appetite to fight back with NCP audits because they want to practice medicine. So what happens now is they're looking for alternative way to practice medicine, and that's why you get to collaborative clinics. Now, I think a collaborative clinic is a wonderful thing. Um, you're going in to, to meet up with all these wonderful you know, multidisciplinary teams uh, um, you know, you get your dietitians and you get physiotherapists and you get massage therapists and you get occupational therapists. This is really good. But the problem with that is, you know, when you when you into a collaborative clinic and you get paid a salary there and you're taking your patients to meet all of these people, it, you will spend more time with your patients. 
it will it, you'll see less patients than you did in the fee for service practice, which means that the for the province who had 150,000 people who did not have a physician, you're taking more patients away. What about blended capitation? Now, I don't understand 100% what it works like. This blended capitation, what it sounds like to me, is you get paid for the amount of charts that you own. So if you own 500 charts or 700 charts, you get paid every two weeks because you own the charts. And then if your patients come in to see you after that, you will you can bill fee for service 20% of the regular fee code. Now, just think about that for a second. If you, over time, this means that naturally the progression of the splendid capitation, the physician does not have to be in the office five days a week. You can be in the office three days a week. You still get paid for the amount of charge that you own. So you will also see less patients than you did when you were a fee-for-service physician. That does not fix the problem with 150,000 people who don't have a family doctor. It does actually it does make the physician's quality of life better because they can spend more time with their families. But coming back to the point, why was this broken in the first place? Because FIFA's, uh, MCP audits broke this because they have absolute power and they have no oversight. That is why the thing got broken. There are still FIFA service physicians out there are sitting on the fence. They don't know if they want to, want to go to blended capitation or not. This needs to be fixed. The FIFA service system needs to be fixed. And there are people up in power that I hope they're listening to this and I hope they are talking to each other and how patients are talking to, you know, to the MHAs. This needs to be fixed because this will impact the medical care in Newfoundland negatively if it doesn't get fixed. All I'm saying is you, you talk about two specific codes. I'm talking about 127 codes, which is chronic disease management. Personally, I think they need to take the wording out of it because people are interpreting the words this way or that way. It's semantics. We are providing a service. A patient comes into you, you spend 15 minutes with the patient, you try and give them the best quality care you can. Um, you have, I can have four or five patients with diabetes and it won't be the same visit because you're having a different conversation depending on what that patient needs on that particular visit. It, but you will send 15 minutes with the patient. You know, I don't know why MCP audits are so hell-bent on looking at the words and trying to find ways in the wording of how they should not be paying physicians for spending, for, for, you know, providing a, a service and spending time with their patients. Take away the wording. You know, if a physician is spending 15 minutes with the patient, whatever he's doing, let him get paid $6 more than a telephone call visit. If physician, make it easier for physicians to do a home visit. I mean, you know, any industry, when people are working after hours, they will get paid time and a half or double time or whatever. I'm not asking for that. But what we get paid, what we can get paid for getting in a vehicle to drive to someone's house between 6 p.m. and midnight is $25 extra. Take away the wording of non-elective and, and elective. It make it easier for physicians to go and see their patient, get in a vehicle, and go and see two or three physicians or uh, patients or five or whatever they want to do. This is a good thing. Seeing patients at home and providing care to patients and mm. examining patients is a good thing. It's, it's never a negative thing. Uh, no, and I mean, the fact of the matter is, is these are submissions by the doctors, you included, they go in and they are simply dealt with by a computer algorithm. So rejection's automatic, as far as I understand in the reading that I've done since you and I have been talking. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. We're still going to try to get someone on from MCP Audits to talk about the system, how it works and how it doesn't work. And I appreciate the information, sir. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, Connie. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, home care, and we're talking about uh, whether or not one of the high schools in the area has reached its best before date. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Exception Bay South. He's the Shadow Minister of Education. Da, 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 da. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Patty, uh, I'm calling in. It was a release I issued actually on Friday regarding uh, Frank Roberts. 
basically long, long past its retirement age, was basically hitting it a news release. And I guess what prompted the release was uh, I've been back and forth, I guess, with a lot of parents. I'm getting a lot of concerns from parents and teachers, actually, so that's a combo. And I've been back and forth with the district of uh, school district uh, facilities on the issues, and they've been very receptive, and we've been back and forth. You know, this has been going on for quite some time. Actually, I started last year, to get ahead of myself, maybe I started last year. We had former minister and deputy and officials toward school, and it was an issue with, uh, you know, it was kind of overcrowding. It was, you know, the gym wasn't adequate. There was no cafeteria. It was lots of issues. Anyway, so they start working on some of those things. They're still not dealt with totally. But it translated, and I wrote, actually, I wrote last year to request for the school for some, you know, put in the list for planning for, for replacing, because school is just not adequate to the needs. Anyway, <clears throat> fast forward this year, I got, I've been getting constant uh, concerns from parents and teachers alike. Um, there's rodents, there's rats, the air quality's not great. Uh, you know, it's obviously cafeterias, overcrowding, and on and on. So I'm back and forth again the year with, with uh, you know, the, you know, the Department of Education and facilities. And they again, once again, being very receptive. But it got to the point, Patty, that I, I guess what really summed it up, I seen a package of Clorox wipes, the picture taken from a teacher's desk, and the rat, it looked like rat holes chewed in the top. But obviously it was a rat, it wasn't a mice. And sightings of rats, uh, mouse traps, or rat traps being removed during parent-teacher interviews, apparently that's been confirmed. So, you know, it got to a point that I really had no choice, and I respectfully told the department, like, I give them a heads up that I have to come out on this issue, and I didn't want to jump no guns. Like, you know, when you get these concerns, sometimes you got to, you know, flesh it out and get to the point. And I got to the point, Patty, I, I don't think there's any choice. they got to do some immediate repairs, I think, for the interim. But this school needs to be, you know, planning needs to be in place to replace the school. And, I mean, when you look at the area, it's a growing area. It's a growth area, and the numbers are trending upwards. And when the numbers trending upwards like that, I mean, there's, there's you know, it's a valid, it's a valid argument that this should be serious consideration given to replacing it. I've had a conversation with the minister and his officials as recently as last week, and I told him actually I was coming out with a release. So I think you know, it, it, it goes without saying. I mean, as much as everyone are looking for probably schools and replacements, I mean, this is an area, it's a metro area, and no child or no teacher should have to work in those conditions. And whether they're accurate or not, I mean, I can't. I mean, I'm getting a lot of pressure from one side, and, and they're the people are up there every day. The students are bringing it up to the parents, and the teachers are reaching out. Pat, it's just not students. These come from teachers as well. So it's quite a serious issue, and I think that government needs to, you know, act quickly on something like this and address it in the interim. But I think it definitely needs to be put on the, you know, the list for replacement. So the no ventilation, no ventilation issue. So were they not uh, able to avail of the air purifiers as part of the whole COVID sole source issue? Yeah, they got them up there, Patty, and I've asked that question as well. And what I'm hearing repeatedly from parents, I mean, one parent was pleading with me. The child is coming home to children, I should say, not there, well, they're one child, but a lot, I get a lot of complaints, children and teachers, they're having respiratory problems, breathing problems, headaches, they're going back and forth to their doctors, and they tend to think it's, you know, it's from the number of students in the school, I don't know, they're, they're, they're attributed to air quality. Now, facilities are telling me they've gone in, they've looked around, and, you know, they'll order air quality if need be. So this is where the tug-of-war began, back and forth. And I'm like, so, I mean, obviously, I got to take this, you know, concerns valid. And so I don't, I, I think it needs to be fully fleshed out, to be honest with you. So that, that's an issue, there's no doubt. And the air quality machines, are, are, they're in the, these portable ones are in all classrooms. 
So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question. I know, but I mean, I think the bigger thing is too outside of that. I mean, you're you're getting you're getting like a lot of you know road and problem like that, and there's in schools and there's and it's very that, that's that's become a big issue too. And I don't know. It's just to me, and I mean, and that alone, Patty, with the overcrowding in school, I think that probably what sums it up is Tom. You know, when I when the heading is it's past the best before date, and I think that maybe the that maybe sum it up perfectly. Yeah, Frank Roberts Jr. High built sometime in the '60s. I've been in it not so long ago. It is in need of some TLC. Whether that means a renovation would satisfy or a full replacement, I don't know. But when it comes to mold, regardless of what sort of uh, ventilation system is in place, mold is an issue that I think we can all get behind is that it has to be addressed in full immediately. For me, that requires not just facilities at the district to get involved. You need something from the health community services to go in and do an evaluation, order the air quality test, address all of the mold, black or otherwise, and deal with it because you cannot have children or adults or anybody in a setting that has any extensive presence of mold on the walls or in the ceilings or wherever it is. So that's something where I think you can drive this bus very quickly and forcefully if mold is a, as a, is an issue that people tell me it is in that school? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean, that's that's been my initial concern, you know, as an occupational safety hazard for students and teachers alike. You know, that got to be dealt with. And, and of course, the bigger issue is the school is just not adequate to the numbers that are going there. And, obviously, so I think that as far you know, government don't want to be, you know, commitment to, committing to schools in, in everywhere, you know, and anywhere. But when you're dealing with a growth area like CBS, and that, that is a real growth area, it's, major, it's one of our major feeder systems to our high school, Queen Elizabeth, what have you, I think it uh, definitely needs to both, both them, you're right, they need to be addressed as soon as possible. I appreciate this and the most recent announcement regarding new schools, I think there's a high school down Portugal Cove, St. Phillips and I can't remember the others off the top of my head and I don't know where this one might be on the list, uh, very much like the road work type of list where priorities are identified and put in some sort of hierarchy for when it'll get attended to but le- oh, I got it right here so budget 2023, $127 million for new schools, one on Cartwright, that has to happen, Portugal Cove, St. Phillips Ken Mount Terrace right across from my studio as well as a redevelopment of the school in Peely's Island. No mention of Frank Roberts Jr. High. I appreciate this this morning, Barry. Thanks a lot. Okay, Patty. Thank Take you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number one. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. How about you? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing all right by one day at a time. Uh, but uh, I'm calling concerning my home care. Okay. Uh, I'm a senior citizen. I'm calling from Grand Falls, Windsor. And uh, I had the uh, social worker come out last week to, for the year review on my home care. And uh, at the time she was here, I was getting ready to go uh, pick up my son from out east. Uh, he's gone through a bad breakup, and he didn't want to be there while she was packing up, understandably. So anyway, uh, my social worker then, she was here, and because my son was coming in to uh, spend a few days with me while that was going on, she, doc- uh, she took uh, half an hour of my daily home care away, and that's going to last for a year. Because you picked uh, up mean, your son? What does that have to do with anything? Oh, because he'd be there to help you. 
Uh, well, yes, that's what she said. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. what she said. But he's only going to be here a few days, and she's got half an hour taken off, which is uh, that's for seven days a week and for a full year. I mean, really. Yeah, it seems like a long way to go for uh, the presence of your son for a few days, and all of a sudden the restrictions now will add up to a year. Has anyone uh, been able to explain to you why they chose a year? And uh, no, no, I can't, can't reach them. I can't reach them. Uh, she left a message on my phone that day after uh, she left, and I'd gone on at least to pick him up. And uh, she had left a voicemail. I've been trying to get through to her every se- ever since. And she said she was unable to get all my hours uh, approved, uh, and that uh, that half hour will, will be taken off for a year when they do their next yearly review. Yeah, it'd be nice to know how they came up with a year, whether that they think that's standard practice or they have a misunderstanding of how long your son will be around, but that well, seems I quite t- strange. I, I told her point blank it was only why she was packing up. He didn't want to be there during that time, which is understandable. But, but what, the, the point that they're trying to put across is that uh, you can't have a visitor for a couple days. And actually, he's been a great help while he's here. He's going back out east now in the next day or two. And uh, he put himself to work here. He's cleaning all of my walls and all of my ceilings for me. So, you know, I'm flabbergasted about a full year with that half hour gone every day. How many hours do you get a day? I get two hours a day. And so now I'm down to one and a half. What kind of uh, support do you get from your home care worker? What are they doing for you while they're at your home? Uh, the support, uh, they do like they do the daily cleanup, uh, saying dishes and prepare meals for me, okay. laundry and things like that. Well, I don't know where to go for redress. So this is a private and, company? And she helps me when I get in the shower because I can't do it on my own anymore. Okay. And so this is home care offered by the province? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Well, I don't know where to turn specifically for some answers on that front. I can take a look around. Uh, but, Cindy, hope you're going to be okay with the hour and a half while we try to get this settled. Yes, I, I, I certainly hope so. And if you can find any information, I'll be listening for it online, or you can call me. Let's see what I can find out. I'll try. I appreciate it, Patty, so much. No Thank problem, you. Cindy. You take care. Not good for mental health of seniors, either. I understand. All right, my love. Thank you. I appreciate you, Patty. My pleasure. You take care. Thank yeah, you. Bye-bye. Bye, Cindy. Yeah, I mean, the young fellow's going to be there for a few days, so we'll slash a quarter of your support for an entire year okay all right good show today big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day talk in the morning bye-bye